Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. I am one of your hosts, Miss Melmoy. I'm the other host, Mr. Craigers. Yes, he is. And as you can tell by our intro, and I actually guess we didn't say what we were going to do last at Christmas. I think we were no, we, didn't, we haven't decided. Yes, but as you can tell by our intro and you know the timing of this episode, we are covering the indomitable that came out a little. I think there's an extra syllable in there, but the <laughs> the game changing, infamous, you know, what's that gift that people put of Lady Gaga where she's like, excellent, amazing, magnificent, you know, that one that people did? That, that yeah, one. insert that here. Insert that here for 1996's Scream by the <laughs> Oh, wait, you were talking about the movie. Yeah. Everyone just scream. I'm, you guys can't see me. I'm rolling away on me. You said it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> then it happened. It, it happened. rolled away. I have to like do a lot of leg strength, actually, to hold myself in place. <laughs> kind of like a good workout. Whenever we record, it's leg day for Miss Mel. leg day. <laughs> anyway, yes, tonight we are covering 1996's Scream, which we've, you know, danced around a bit. And I think we've included it in a few things. And Sydney Prescott, obviously, I think got to... She, she got knocked out in the final round of uh, our ladies who munch uh, yeah. brackets, but uh, we've never actually- Was she the runner up? She was because we almost yeah. asked what's her face from Happy Death Day and ended Tree. up giving her the crown. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> she beat Sydney Prescott. I think that's what it was. Um, yeah. But anyway, we're, we're finally devoting a, a full episode to- to the, you know, I would argue, and this isn't just me, but some would argue, you know, the reason that uh, horror is as rich as it is today, or at least a good reason why, you know, I, I, I would say most things that come out today can trace their legacy and their lineage back to Scream. It's a huge, huge factor for why horror is so big right now, especially this new slasher craze that we've got going mm-hmm. on over the last year or so um yeah yeah definitely like mm-hmm. we we owe a lot to to this quirky little movie that we're going to talk about today which is crazy that it took us 90 some episodes before we were like yeah let's talk about screen i know well when i texted <laughs> you i was like we've obviously done it already and then i was like i don't think we have <laughs> i was like no <laughs> so I think it just comes up so much that I just assume that. Right. Uh, that well, we've we're done such it. big fans. There's so many reasons to talk about it in, you know, various discussions. Yeah. But yeah, it was kind of a little silly when I was like, wait, we've never talked about it on its own as yeah. it deserves. <laughs> yeah. So here we are on the eve of hopefully some last minute decision to put the fifth one on a streaming platform i'm really crossing my fingers yeah at the time of this recording there's been no shift in the distribution plans for scream either a postponement which i think would be very unlikely at this point or a vod option which also seems unlikely but would be really really great yeah no it's yeah i mean we can get into that you know we can make that sort of a a conversation for for later in the um in the thing here because i've got a lot of feelings about it but whatever i'm rolling away again <laughs> there you go again it's so funny because 
obviously no one can see you but I just see you just sort of like and I feel the need to to talk about it even though no one can see me and no one would know but I feel the need to explain at least to you why I'm like weirdly fidgeting and like crawling back towards the the screen (laughs) the um my office is you know my apartment's in a um subdivided former Victorian house so uh, the floor is not quite as uh wonky even as it used to be I'm guessing (laughs) so in this room um but yeah so before we get into that though um I mean, I guess one horror headline is, yes, as of this reporting, they have not shifted and they're like playing dumb about why people want that. Right. Annoying. They're like, oh, why? What's wrong? Nothing's happening. Yeah, it's like, um, what if, uh, what if we all just took a moment and acknowledged the reality of the world we live in right now? And- yeah. So that's I a little guess- bit of a bummer because I would happily pay $30 to watch it on Paramount Plus, whatever you want to, you know? So I, I don't know why they're so hesitant because Halloween Kills did the dual option it, and it made a ton of money. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. And I mean, it sucks because there were so many things that were part of HBO's like plan to do that, you know, like June and um, a bunch of other stuff. But I just, you know, it's it's a bummer. And especially because like, I don't know, like I feel like with the placement of, this film in January, like they definitely, I feel like they didn't have a ton of faith in it to begin with. So I don't know, like if there's something there with that. Yeah, I was definitely concerned when they, back when they announced the January release date, because I was like, uh oh, mm-hmm. the dumping ground. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like this like beginning part of the year like studios have been trying to reclaim that with like decent-ish horror and it doesn't always work like I'm thinking like you know what was it 2020 like the turning came out like this yeah. same weekend and that was yeah. that was not so good and but then like also like Greta on Hansel came out I think in like early February and that was a great movie well and Annihilation came out around this time too I think it was a little yeah. bit later but it was definitely very early in the year. And of course, it didn't get, you know, any of the attention it deserved. Right, yeah. It's, yeah, it's also tough when you release something so early in the year um, if you want it to be a real contender. Yeah. But on the other <laughs> hand, I mean, like, I like the trailer. That got me and mm-hmm. has kept me excited for the movie. Um, initial like reactions on social media seem very positive. Yeah, I saw, because everyone's, wild west out there because everyone's like i saw the screener and now i'm going to talk about it without warning um i saw one person tweet that they really like felt the nostalgia for the first one in it Mm. like it like in a good way and then i stopped reading because i was like no (laughs) right yeah um i know i'm I'm always like, okay, I want to, I want to like get a sense of people's reactions, but I don't want to accidentally see anything. Um, I did see one thing. It wasn't major, nothing like, like a a death or the killer. The killer is in the poster. Yeah. Right. I didn't see anything like that, but I did see something and I was like, son of a bitch, man. Like 
put a warning up or just yeah. don't put well, it on Twitter at all. Like, and I saw, I don't know if it was bloody disgusting or who it was put up, like, you know, they were like, just so you know, like we will tag our, like what tags they were using for when they would, um, you know, like post a review that had spoilers in it and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, obviously I'm still going to see it no matter what. Um, yeah. It just, you know, and it's not even that I would want it to get, you know, more like I think even a you know just having this one is like a nice gift to have and you know I don't know what their plans are for um you know doing more in the franchise I know like when they put out the fourth one they were hoping to set up like a new trilogy and that didn't really right pan out and then Wes Craven passed away um but you know I'm just happy to have this so but I would love it to watch it without getting the plague right yeah I want to be surprised but yeah I'm totally with you I'm just I never after uh Wes Craven did pass away I never expected that there would be another scream installment I was like okay well then it's just the four yeah um and so the fact that we are getting this one I'm like I'm just happy to have another scream movie that looks decent yeah yeah no it looks I mean it's the whole thing is like and, you know, and like, and, and that has the big three back, you mm-hmm. know, like, it's not some weird thing where like, it's like, they're not there. Or... Sydney's away on vacation. and <laughs> Yeah. Like it's, I mean, that's the thing about this franchise. Like, I think it's the one horror franchise that has maintained one continuity throughout every single entry. No, and I was thinking about that because I was like, okay, what other horror films have this many films or more like five four sequels off of the first one you know and i'm like okay at this point halloween had like three different timelines right Um, friday the 13th had sort of rebooted quote unquote the story several times or at least Mm -hmm. once or twice with newer different characters they had done away with their original killer you know spent two films reinventing jason um you know yeah nightmare on elm street it's just crazy (laughs) crazy and they they also kind of do like a weird rebooty meta thing with new nightmare yeah Yeah. um so yeah no it is interesting the way that they treat it like you know this is the same through line it's the same person it's the same characters um who all live through the same events although we do Mm -hmm. know that stab five introduced time travel i know what does that mean for scream five (laughs) um but Sorry, no, so, no, you're fine. But um, <laughs> that that is something I was thinking about. Is like, how many times do you have people excited for the fifth film in a franchise, like knowing it's the same right. narrative? Yeah, not that often. No, like Star Wars, and even that, like you. I was going to say, like you've got prequels, and you know, right, and that was all like, yeah, that was out of order, and yeah, like outside of like you know something from like the MCU. Mm. you know or a big crazy blockbuster like this is incredibly incredibly rare so it's just it's just kind of fun like you said that it's happening again it's just like nice yeah you know especially because I wasn't super into Scream when the fourth one came out like I had not really yeah that's right fully gotten into it yet so it was fun being able to like because I remember when it was coming out and I was like okay um (laughs) but um yeah it's nice to be like a part of the you know, like, oh, yeah, like the trailer, or no, yeah, you know, stuff yeah. like that. But, um, yeah, good stuff. I do want to do real quick while we're still in our horror headlines. I have, I picked the one movie 
that I was going to pitch to you from mine from last year. Yes, I can't. Yes, I'm so ready. Yeah. Okay. So yes, obviously, we have entered a new year. Happy New Year, chatters. Mm-hmm. Uh, we posted our top ten favorites from last year over on the blog, splatteredchatter.com. Not as much overlap as we thought we would have had. So we're going to take a few quick seconds right now to pitch to each other something that the other didn't have, but that we think that they should really see. Yeah. Which, you know, on the, I'm thinking, I was like, maybe he saw it and thought it was trash, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, Oh yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah. So, and if you thought it was trash, I'll tell you why you're wrong. Um, Exactly. There we go. The one that I really enjoyed, and I think it's like very much just, maybe it's just up my alley, but, um, the one that I really liked besides the the TV show that I had in the like honorable mentions would have been in here maybe uh-huh. area, which was um, Kasla, which is Icelandic. Um, it's probably like a, a drama thriller is what people would call it, but there's some scary shit and there's some <laughs> scary scenes in it, um, but it's pretty cool. It's um, that one. I would, I would suggest everyone check it out. But the one I'm going to pitch okay. to you is um in the earth oh i didn't get to see it so right yeah <laughs> no i you know you uh, you know y'all can read my um quick little write-up on it in the blog post but it and you put that pretty high right was that your number three it was my like number three or number four um, yeah i really enjoyed it it stars joel fry reese shearsmith Haley squires Alora torchia john hillingsworth and mark monero um but only Joel Fry, um, Haley Squires, and I want to say Alora, Alora Tricia, yeah, are like the only ones who are really in it throughout, and um, Reese Shearsmith, because mm-hmm. it's kind of very isolationist. It's basically the story is Joel Fry is playing this like geologist who's visiting uh, like a nature preserve to like basically learn how he can make props better like that's his job like he's a researcher for that and um the character of um Alma who's played by Alora Torchia is like his guide basically into the nature preserve and like they basically are out there and they get attacked and all their shit gets stolen um because this is why you don't go into nature (laughs) well because the frame story for this the setup is that it takes place during an unnamed but it's COVID pandemic um, oh yeah, I remember seeing you you did yeah. that in your description. <laughs> yeah, they don't say what it is, but it's COVID. Um, and uh, basically, I guess this is some like slightly alternate future version of COVID where like we've all gone a little bit more rabid. Oh God. <laughs> Maybe closer to contagion. Than like a couple more now. variants down the line. Yeah, so they get like attacked by some covid scavengers or something i don't know but anyway other shit gets stolen and they meet this guy zach who like lives on the preserve who offers to help them but there's something kind of off about zach and there's something kind of off about this nature preserve um in this forest and it goes from there and it very much reminds me of like if you put the like stylization of annihilation like the music and the some of the cinematography and the use of color and put that with sort of like something like the ritual or midsummer. Ooh, okay. Yeah. It's interesting. So almost like a blend of like folk horror and cosmic horror. 
Yeah, like folk horror. Or at least like, like aesthetically weird, cosmic yeah, horror. Yeah, and like weird, co- aesthetically cosmic horror, weird sci-fi stuff going on. Um, yeah. Because it, it also deals a lot with sort of like the like obscure shit that trees do that we all know about and just don't talk about <laughs> how creepy it is. <laughs> In case they hear it. us. Yeah. like you And know, then it becomes the happening. Basically. And like the fact that, um, you know, trees communicate with each other. And yeah. They have different things that they can do. And it takes that and runs with it. But um, it's a lot of fun. And it's definitely like leans into like what I could see as a sort of like pandemic paranoia film, like not trusting anyone or not trusting your mm. senses or like having some sort of like um, danger that you can't see, but you know is there type deal. Interesting. Um, without ever being explicit about the fact that he was had to be in quarantine for two days before going into the nature preserve because of COVID. <laughs> they were like, oh, you got out of quarantine. They don't say why. They don't say why. Because this, of, because of the, the, the thing. The thing. And, you know, it's obviously COVID because this was written in August 2020. So, like. So, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that was, you know, on my radar, kind of like on my list. I felt like 2021 in particular, there was a lot I wanted to get to and didn't compared to past years. Yeah. I don't know why or. Well, because I wasn't going to the movie theater. <laughs> so well, I had to yeah. like get, like, I wanted to watch Promising well, but, Young Woman, but it's still like 20 bucks. And I was just like, oh, like I'll, get to it, I'll get to it eventually. Yeah. But. Um, yeah, good pitch. I'm, de- I'm, I'm about that. I want to, and it's on Hulu. So I'm gonna check that. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah. It was, I was wondering um, if it would be on Shutter because they're like um, they're doing like a big folk horror thing right now. Yeah, um, I was seeing that. Yeah, there's that that documentary from last year that looks at folk horror in general, and like just today they the were blight. promoting the the blight. <laughs> Um, they're promoting the unholy trinity of Wicker oh, Man right. oh, and yeah. Witchfinder and Reminds Blood on me. Satan's Claw. Speaking of, this isn't folk horror, but this just reminded me what I found in a thrift store. The viewers can't see this. Yeah, you snapped that. It is a first edition hardcover of Rosemary's Baby. It's first edition. Mm-hmm. I looked it up because I was like, I... this is old as shit. Came out in 1967 and I got it for $1.50. Oh. that is awesome throwing that on the pile for october that's crazy that it was that the novel came out in 67 and then the movie came out only a year later like I, they were they were on it that's how i felt about um what what was it um amityville did the same thing i mean granted oh, yeah. amityville had a little bit of sensationalism i think before the book came out but the book came out and the movie came out a year later but I also yeah, think they made movies faster back in those days. True, yeah. Yeah. Like that, I feel actually, like it, it took them less time to film. Actually, actually, funny enough, like, as we'll talk about later, Scream had a very fast uh, turnaround between production and distribution. Yeah. I feel, well, I was even thinking that with, like, with Scream 2 comes out very quickly after that. A year later. Yeah. It's like, how, do you, how do you do that? Um, yeah. But anyway, what do you what do you got? So I think I'm gonna decide. I, I think I'm going to decide. I think <laughs> I'm going to pitch um, the vigil. Okay. 
Did you you did did you see? I it? didn't see it. Okay. I it was on my list of things that I was like, this looks interesting. Right. Okay. Good. Cool. Cool. It is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's also on Hulu. Actually, I saw it there the other day. I was like, great. Um, it's very simple in its premise. It's about um this young um. Jewish man who is kind of like falling away from the more traditional aspects of his faith. And he, um, there's a term for it and I apologize because I can't remember, but basically he um, will go and uh, sit Shiva Mm -hmm. um, during like times when family can't be there or for like people that didn't, really like have a lot of family or something or yeah it's yeah. like an actual thing like you can pay people so that there's yeah, always yeah. somebody there and I've so what's that i said i've heard tell of, of yeah things. yeah so he his rabbi um approaches him with an opportunity for this and so you know he goes to this house where somebody has died um and while he's there, it's, it's like an over, he's there like for the night shift, I guess, for lack of a better term. <laughs> night um, yeah, this is, like he's like night shiva. It starts at like, it's already like really late when he gets there. Okay. And quickly, you know, he and we, the audience come to realize that something else might be in the house and something nope, might nope, have caused nope. <laughs> an unnatural death for this person. Oh, that sounds cool. I mean, yeah, it sucks for them, but. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so there's this thing as these weird, creepy, eerie things start happening, you know, where he's like, what the fuck? Um, but he's also, he's not allowed to leave. Right. You know, and Somebody he to wants to, yeah. He wants to stay. And it's like, well, does he stay because he has, you know, he's got the crisis of faith thing that's going on right now, but he also like needs the money. Right. And so it's all of that sort of tied in together. It was a really chilling movie. Um, and like, so simple, like. Right. I love, I love stuff. Like that's why when, you know, when I saw VHS 94, my favorite one in there was, um, it might've also been called the vigil or something like it, but it was the one where the person was sitting in the wake overnight. Yes. Um, yeah. And that was creepy as shit, but I was like, such a simple concept. So simple. Yeah. And this is very much in that vein, you know, right? Yeah. Like it's space. it's him. There's like one or two scenes at the beginning where he's, I don't know. I think he's like at his apartment or whatever. And then he like meets the rabbi. And then the rest of it takes place at the house over this one night, you know? So it's got that claustrophobic feeling. Um, there's like grief and guilt and all sorts of like stuff with religion that mm-hmm. goes on as part of the story, which is fun. And sort of like this idea that I think is getting explored more and more often in horror and just talked about in general, like the idea of generational trauma, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. So I really liked it. It was my, I think I put it at number two. Um, so that is my pitch to you. Into that. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so still a lot of good stuff from last year that I think we both need to check out. Um, yeah. And then real quickly, 
I thought we could just mention some of the stuff that God willing is coming up for this year. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Obviously we've got Scream coming out um, about a week or so out from the time of this recording. Um, But then we've also got uh, the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, which will be premiering on Netflix on Valentine's Day. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's Unwelcome, You Won't Be Alone, Morbius got pushed back to April. Uh, Robert Eggers' new movie, The Northman. Oh, yeah. I'm really excited yeah. about that one. Did you see the trailer? I did. Oh, it looks so good. Yeah. And yeah. it was cool, like, who he, like, first of all, Bjork being in it and looking like, you know, <laughs> Bjork. Um, but the author he worked with to write the screenplay is, like, a really good, cool Scandinavian um, author. I forget his name. But he co-wrote it with a, oh, nice. for the Scandinavian With Eggers? Guy. Yeah. And then... Yeah. Um, it's based on a folklore or a folklore. It's based on a folk tale or a legend that is believed to be the basis of Hamlet. Dude, I'm ready. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah, that's going to be good. Uh, he's working with Anya Taylor-Joy again. Mm-hmm. She's in it. Um, I think, is, is Defoe in it? Is he? I think Defoe's in it. And obviously a scar is going yeah i think defoe was i feel like i saw him in the trailer yeah um, and uh, yeah one of the scars guards and uh guards. nicole kidman's in it nicole kidman as his mom i think um bjork is some sort of woodland <laughs> hag witch <laughs> so basically playing herself yeah <laughs> yeah 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 that looks good um, we've also got Jurassic World Dominion coming out this summer. Uh, the Black Phone, which they moved from winter to summer, which means they have high hopes for it. And yeah, it looks creepy as hell. Exactly Ethan Hawke looks totally terrifying <laughs> in that movie. I can't um, wait for that one. Funny thing about Ethan Hawke is, I don't know if you saw that New York Times headline about how they caught the person who had been stealing unpublished manuscripts, but like they showed a picture of Ethan Hawke and Margaret Atwood in the thumbnail because I guess they were two authors whose manuscripts got stolen and somebody stolen. commented, they were like, I don't know what's going on, but that night, that 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 older woman needs to leave Ethan Hawke alone. <laughs> 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 wow. <laughs> incredible what if it turned out it was margaret atwood stealing ethan hawk's manuscript like for research yeah and she was just covering her tracks so she stole a bunch of other ones um uh but oh jordan peele's new movie nope oh yeah nope coming out at christmas i think they moved it up to july oh so interesting it has like christmas lights in the poster i don't know if that was just because they first put out sort of the campaign for it around christmas or yeah i don't know i i'm hoping that if it's set at christmas time then they'll just move it back i don't want to see christmas movie in the in july yeah. yeah interesting but it's i mean it's so hard because like it's completely shrouded in mystery and no one like knows anything about yeah, it Yeah, like my understanding of it is aliens are somehow involved because that's what's on the poster i think so and it looks like they're abducting a string of Christmas lights. <laughs> and that's that's what I know about it. They're festive aliens. Yeah. I heard about this Jesus guy. 
I heard about the Jesus guy. Um, there's two movies coming out on our birthday, actually. Ooh. I know. Um, a new movie called Dark Harvest. Okay. Um, and the remake of Salem's Lot. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and I mean, it's not a movie, but um, House of Usher will be. House of Usher. Does that have a, uh, do we know when? I don't think it has a date yet, but they started at least pre-production because when mm-hmm. Goli was posting about it. Um, and I don't think they've named it yet. I saw that. No, um, I don't think, not officially. Mike Flanagan retweeted what I can only assume is somebody's like parody they were like announcing the cast of haunting of skeleton town yeah i saw that (laughs) and like kate siegel was like wasn't she like the skeleton wench or something (laughs) the skeleton wench (laughs) i was like this is i would actually want to watch this yeah (laughs) yeah that should be coming out this year um hocus pocus 2 um, all right that filmed that started filming i think right after Halloween was over. Yeah, yeah, they're probably, if they're not done already, I would think almost. Um, Halloween ends, of course. Oh, I will say about Hocus Pocus 2, just looking at the names of characters and who people are playing, I don't think it's based on the book that I read. Oh, so they are doing their own thing. I think they are, which is good because I didn't like. (laughs) Yeah, you were crazy about that. Um, And I'm not seeing any of the same characters listed in the cast list when it you know, because it lists at least first names. Um, so I'm thinking that they're doing their own thing. Well, that's good then. Yeah. Um, but yes, Halloween Violet, ends. Violet Night in December. And then a couple other ones that don't have release dates yet, like um, the new Evil Dead movie, uh, The Grandmother, Bones and All, the Hellraiser remake, um, the Munsters that Tim Burton's doing. There's supposedly an adaptation, a film adaptation of My Best Friend's Exorcism this year. Oh. Um, so we'll see if that goes through. And uh, yeah, and a couple other things that are up in the air and obviously everything is sort of up in the air right now and things could get wonky. But uh, hopefully there'll be some good stuff to check out this year. It'll be exciting. But I think it's time. Yep. Are you ready? I was born ready. Oh, she was born ready. All right, then let's start our main discussion on 1996's Scream, um, directed by the late, great Wes Craven, and of course, starring Nev Campbell, David Arquette, and Courtney Cox. Let's kick things off by taking a listen to that sweet, sweet mid-90s trailer. Hello. Hello. Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? I'll do some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? So I want to know who I'm looking at. Someone is playing a deadly game. It all began with a scream over 911. Someone who's seen one too many scary movies. Now he's taken his love of fear. Hello? Hello, Sydney. One step too far. Do you 
like scary movies. What's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act. She's always running up the stairs, and she should be going out the front door. It's insulting. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a scary movie. Number one, you can never have sex. Never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. Get another beer, you want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. Who do we make the rules? The police are always on track. If they watch Palm Night, it's safe time. He just kills by them. Don't answer the phone. Don't open the door. Don't try to hide. All right, so um, as we always kind of like to do with our main discussions uh, for films, we're going to kick things off with a nice, simple, when did you first see this movie and what were your first impressions? Um, Well, as I mentioned, I didn't, I'd seen bits and pieces of it before, um, you know, because like it was something I think my sister was into um, at least a little bit because she was kind of like the target audience when it came Mm -hmm. out. Uh, age was and I'd seen like bits and pieces at like sleepovers and that sort of thing but at the (laughs) I had seen scary movie more than I had (laughs) seen actual scream so it was interesting to see like what um you know was actually scream and and what was parody and that sort of thing um but the first time actually sitting down and watching it was when we sat down and watched all of them uh, yeah in the basement in uh New York um yeah yeah when was how long ago was that that was now? like five or six years ago yeah that's crazy yeah yeah we we were hanging out with our friend and her friend mm-hmm. for like a whole weekend or a couple days or something and I think it was because you hadn't seen them right like we were just like well then we're gonna watch all four yeah yeah, because I think her friend had all the four of them on DVD yeah. or something. So we all sat down and watched them. That was a fun night. Yeah, no, it was good. So, yeah, no, we truly, like, I, I can't remember if we watched all four of them in one day. But we definitely watched at least the first. We might have watched three of them at once and then watched the fourth one the next day. The I next can't, day. Yeah, I can't yeah. quite remember, but we really binged them. Yeah, it was a nice proper binge. You know, there was alcohol involved. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I was trying to rack my brain knowing, you know, that we do this question. I don't remember the first time I saw this movie start to finish. Um, obviously not at the time of its release because I was six. No. And that would have been very inappropriate. I probably, probably some point in like late middle school, mm-hmm. I remember definitely by the end of middle school, because I remember like writing a short story in like eighth grade. That was, and it was a scream. It was a scream. <laughs> yeah. So I had to have seen it by then. Um, and by that point, all, 
well, the three of them at the time would have been out. So yeah, probably some point in middle school. I really don't remember the first time I saw it start to finish though. I do remember seeing pieces of it here and there, kind of like you were saying, mm-hmm. enough to like pique my interest and be like, I want to see this. Um, and I think I'm pretty sure though, that by the first time I did see the whole thing, I knew the ending. See, that was my thing is I didn't know um, who the killers were in any of them. Um, which is awesome. Yeah. Which and is, I'm really jealous. <laughs> yeah. Cause I remember watching it and being like, you know, like in my head, you know, and like, I feel like Jamie asked me every five minutes, she's like, so who do you think the killer is? And I was like, I'm not going to answer you because I, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely, the first time I watched it did not know uh, how it ended. Yeah. Which I guess maybe this is a good moment to say that in order to properly talk about this film, we're going to have to talk about the ending. So, and it's also 25 years old. Yeah. So (laughs) if you haven't seen it and you don't know, and you want to keep it that way, now is the time to stop listening. Yeah. Um, Wonderful. So, yeah. So yeah, it is 25 years old uh dropped in 1996 let's talk a little bit about the state of horror in the mid 90s because i have a little i don't know where you put it in the notes but i know where i put it in the notes Uh, i have some stuff or is this part of your three pages that didn't make it into the not not that much that i didn't get to put in here but enough uh basically to say that like by the mid nineties, I think as many of us know, horror was having a, like a major identity crisis. It was children of the corn part nine. I got you. I got you on this. I straight up got you on this because I was going to talk about how all of the major franchises, um, they were actually being given studio money, but like the talent there, like, you know, and the, um, actual creatives didn't know what to do with these franchises anymore and so we got just this like slew of mediocre films for like six seven years in a row the uh there was a vox article that referred to it as uh, stab wipe repeat as like basically what that's great what people were doing it was definitely the dark times but yeah for some context like going into um you know, like 1996, like right before Scream was released. Um, well, Wes Craven had done Vampires in Brooklyn, which totally bombed. Uh, Carpenter was the only other big name horror director working at the um, at, in the mid 90s, but his films were also bombing. You had Child's Play 3. You had Jason Goes to Hell, which was the yes, I think that's our next one, right? It is our next one. We'll be covering that in May. (laughs) Um, It was the ninth Friday, the 13th movie, the ninth, you guys. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street was up to new nightmare, which is actually really good, but it totally flopped at the box office. It was a little bit ahead of its time. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, Halloween six, the curse of Michael Myers had come out in 95. is that the one where they're trapped in the house no that's the one where oh that's, that's where paul, paul rudd paul, and the yeah. cult of thorn yeah the cult of thorn okay yeah 
Yeah. No, the one where they're trapped in the house is the sequel to H2O. Is Resurrection. Right, Resurrection. That one's so bad. Yeah, when it's like truly just an excuse. Like they just used Halloween as the frame story. Totally. Yeah. The Curse of Mike Myers, this this sixth one is kind of regarded as like the next worst one. Well, you know, what's this is a debate for another time, but the theater by, not by me, but the one like the Colonial um, had a whole Cult of Thorn um, trilogy marathon around Halloween. Oh, they, they did. Yeah, they really like it. Like they're like really, really into I mean, it. I've come around on a lot of elements mm-hmm. from six in particular. Yeah. And I've always liked four. Five I go back and forth with. Yeah, but like you do, kind of have to take them as their own thing. Yeah, <laughs> which is otherwise like, they'll piss you off. Right, and that's yeah. like basically what they were doing was like, okay, like all the Strodes are gone, essentially. Um, or no, is that? Well, Jamie's there. Jamie's but... there, but she eventually. But she dies. Gets and, it. Yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah. Anyway, it's Paul Rudd playing a, a grown-up. Uh, <laughs> He gives such a weird performance. He does. It's like I think it was his first film role. Yeah, that was a that was a breakout for him. Hilarious. And that, that happens a couple times in the Halloween franchise. I mean, um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in. Right. Oh my god, oh, he's that's in the his... the opening of. Um, yeah, he's in the opening. It's yeah. weird. Um, but yeah, so Halloween Six comes out the year before Scream. Um, you've also got Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the next generation, which I didn't double check on this, but I think while it was filmed in 95, I don't think it was released until 97 because of Matthew McConaughey and, um, Reese Witherspoon. And I think they were waiting a bit because they both had movies coming out. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Candyman 2 came out in 95. Hellraiser 4 came out um, the same year. Uh, Psycho 4 came out in the 90s. Omen 4, The Awakening. Silent Night, Deadly Night 5. Prom Night 4. Maniac Cop 3. Phantasm 3. Leprechaun 3. The Howling 7 came out in the early 90s. A lot of these were direct to video, weren't they? A lot of these are, especially these last couple were direct to video. Yeah. 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 I, I know for a fact Silent Night, Omen, Psycho, and Prom Night were all direct to video. And actually, so was Leprechaun 3. Um, Tremors 2, Amityville Horror 8. And Remember that oh, really shitty one we watched? No, I think that was seven or nine. I know, but do you remember? Like, I do remember that. Actually, no, that was the 11th one, I remember. Yeah, and it was like kind of a reboot. Yeah. It wasn't even Amity. They like half used the backstory. It was really weird. We were like, what? And then uh, the last one to mention was Children of the Corn 4. Four. (laughs) Is that where they go to the big city? One of them, they like go to. I couldn't remember because I was like, I kind of thought the same thing. I was like, where's the one where it's not actually like in. Yeah. There's one where they're in like Manhattan or something. And I think it's three or four. Yeah. Anyway. Yes. So yeah. So that's where things were going in the nineties. And like the one real standout, as we talked about a couple episodes back, check it out. um, was silence of the lambs. Right. 
um, Which in 1991. got the horror label ripped off of it when Oscar buzz started and it Ex- turned into a psychological exactly. Exactly. And so what you were seeing is sort of horror turning into psychological thrillers. You know, we started getting things like Seven and um, all those really grimy serial killer type things, but everyone was avoiding horror outright um, because it was it was dying. It was straight up dying. Um, like you said, like it was all direct to video. Um, the big names, you know, creative wise were puttering out. Um, actors didn't want to touch the genre. Studios, studios were kind of willing to put money behind it, but again, no one knew what what to do with these franchises that were in their fourth, fifth, yeah, eighth entries. Like, stop. Yeah. Um. But uh, luckily. Uh, someone had an idea about maybe where to take things and that somebody was um, a screenwriter by the name of Kevin Williamson. Um, Now one of the most legendary screenwriting names in horror, but at the time, not quite yet. So Williamson, basically, he's looking at the state of horror in the mid-90s and he is like, where's that like one movie? Where's that thing that's going to define this generation of moviegoers? You know, like every generation has that horror movie. And I can't see one right now because Silence of the Lambs is like a fairly like adult movie, Mm -hmm. you know? And he's like, but what are like, you know, what are the kids going to, you know, grab onto? Like, what's their thing going to be? And he doesn't see it. So he decides he's going to write it himself, you know? It's like that great writing advice, like write the, the thing that you want to read, you know, or the thing that you want to watch. Right. Um, he was working on another script at the time called Teaching Mrs. Tingle, um, which involves like violence in schools. And he ends up shelving that um, after the Columbine shooting happens. But um, he does gain inspiration to sort of, um, or, Yeah, he gains, uh, not the idea, but he gains inspiration to make the idea a reality based off of um, a story he hears about the Gainesville Ripper. Right. Um, which you had a little bit about there for us. So yeah. do you want to give us some background on yeah. There's not who too was much. the Gainesville Ripper? Uh, it was Daniel Harold ha- Rowling. Got to, you know, three name them. Um, but, uh, he ended up killing, I think, eight people. Um, but I'm going to guess the thing that like, you know, that, um, Williamson really latched onto was his first sort of spree of murders was in August, uh, 1990 at a college, two local colleges in Gainesville, where he ended up murdering five students. Um, he also did some you know, weird post-mortem mutilation and that sort of, you know, gross thing. Um, he would go on to kill three more people and attempt to kill his own father. I don't believe he actually succeeded. Damn. Um, and then he was arrested uh, in 1990, basically towards, um, or he, he was arrested in 1991. Um, 
and you know he he had all sorts of gross scary things he did he um was eventually sentenced to lethal injection and that was carried out but um oh wow yeah he um it's he's been in a lot of um like sort of like pop culture things without i think without people even realizing um his character or his character like he he has been the um uh inspiration for a lot of characters and like you know sort of like one-off in tv shows and sort of monster of the week type thing and there's been a lot of documentaries that feature things about him because i think he's kind of one of the last of you know what we think of when it comes to like late century um serial killing um Mm. you know that was big in like the 70s and 80s but um yeah i think his big thing as it relates to Scream was he went after, you know, young adults. Young people, yeah. Yeah, which, wow, very creepy, very disturbing, obviously. Um, Yeah, I think you're right. We can see some of that DNA there. Uh, It it affected uh, Williamson when he heard about the story. There's an interview with him where he talks about he was like staying at a friend's house um, and he saw like a news report or, or some sort of thing about the Ripper, um, which I, you know, I'm guessing would have been like after he was caught, you know, so maybe like mm-hmm. a true crime documentary or something. Um, and then like right after that, he like was walking around the house and there was an open window that he knew that like nobody had opened. So it like really freaked him out that, you know, somebody was in the house or whatever. Um, the idea of like someone like lying in wait and so he's got all of this swirling around in his head and he sits down and he writes this 18 page um, short script about a woman who is alone in the house um, who was taunted over the phone and then eventually attacked by a masked killer and so um, after uh, teaching Mrs. Tingle gets shelved um, this is the project he decides to really focus on and bring to fruition. So he headed down to Palm Springs. Uh, <laughs> as and you do. As you do when you need to write your screenplay. Um, and he like totally secluded himself. And over the course of three days, he writes the full script for what was then called Scary Movie. Um, And during that three days, he also writes two five-page outlines, uh, one for Scary Movie 2 and one for Scary Movie 3. And while he's writing, he listened to the Halloween soundtrack um, and he was sort of like consistently thinking about and drawing upon um, the movies Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, When a Stranger Calls, and Prom Night uh, for inspiration. He also would later cite um, the movies Fade to Black, uh, Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, Student Bodies, There's Nothing Out There, and National Lampoon's Class Reunion as influences um, while he was writing this screenplay. I think particularly like how to write like the kids and group mm-hmm. dynamics. Um, 
which I think is something he really excels at. I think Kevin Williamson has a really good um, voice for like young people um, and how they like actually talk to each other, um, which you see in Scream. Mm-hmm. And also like, you know, I know what you did last summer, um, which he also writes a year um, after this. And so, yeah, he's got his finished screenplay. It's June of 1995. He brings it to his agent, Rob Paris, to start shopping around Hollywood, seeing if anybody's interested. Paris is like, I'm really not sure anyone is going to be because there's a lot of violence in this script. And, um, you know, that's always a, uh, a red flag rating wise. But there does end up being a small bidding war over Scary Movie uh, between Paramount, Universal, and Morgan Creek Productions. Um, None of them actually end up getting it. Uh, The screenplay goes to Miramax. They buy it off Williamson for 400 grand. Uh, (laughs) Right? All right. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, They also, part of the deal includes a contract for two sequels, as well as a possible fourth film. Um, But with all that comes an agreement that they'll have to cut many of the gorier elements um, from the screenplay, which Williamson agrees to. But then uh, when Wes Craven eventually comes on board as the director, he just brings back most of that stuff because he's like, yeah, no, we're we're gonna do that. Um, And, After all of that settled, Miramax eventually gives the film to their horror and fantasy arm of production, Dimension Films, which is headed under um, Bob Weinstein at the time. The less problematic Weinstein? Yeah, I think the one at least who's not in jail. Right. Right. So, um, Weinstein's fairly excited about this idea. Um, He goes to the screenplay. He decides he wants an additional murder in the story because he counted 30 pages, uh, AKA 30 minutes uh, without a kill. And uh, that is why Principal Hembry is murdered. Um, His kill was added because of this, which Williamson said actually ended up really helping to solve a problem that he had had in the writing, which was how to get all of the kids out of Stu's house during the third act. Right. So that, you know, just our core characters could be present for the finale. You know, because as we know in the finished film, they leave when they hear that Principal Henry's body is hanging from the goalposts. They all go see it. (laughs) Fucked up kids. Yeah. At this time, there's also some discussion going on between Williamson and Dimension about how to handle the question of motive in the movie. Um, There's some division, you know, where you've got folks feeling that a motive is necessary um, so that the audience can have closure during the resolution. And then you've got like an equal amount of folks saying that it would be way scarier if there was no motive behind the killings. And so, as there were two killers, uh, Williamson realizes that they could just do both. 
with Billy citing maternal abandonment as his reasoning and Stu only jokingly offering peer pressure as his motive. Peer pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think does work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you get the sense that he's just doing it because, which actually, you know, I'm of the mind that no motive is actually scarier. Um, oh, you I are? Think, yeah, because I think Stu being like, yeah, sure, whatever, let's do it. You know, as I imagine he he probably was when, you know, Billy first brought this to him. It's kind of freakier to think that he just was fine. Yeah. You know, doing all this and not really having a reason for doing it. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely... Um, so yeah it was sort of like a best of both worlds thing uh there everybody got what they wanted um in terms of that story development weinstein um at this point then approaches wes craven uh believing that his prior work blending humor and horror uh makes him the perfect fit to direct this movie um, Craven was actually already familiar with the script because he had um, been able to read it during the bidding war. Um, but he was coming off of uh, with Vampire in Brooklyn, which was a total bomb. And um, the film before that, New Nightmare, uh, which also didn't do well at the box office, but was um, very similar to Scary Movie. You know, it was a meta commentary on the slasher genre and um, the treatment of the character of Nancy Thompson as uh, a final girl. It was about how children are influenced by media and um, that back and forth relationship, all of which we sort of see going on um, in Scream. I always thought of New Nightmare kind of as his statement of concept for this. And just, yeah. you know, New Nightmare needed something like Scream to come first. Cause I feel like New Nightmare was like jumping over a step yeah that's a really good point because for a long time I always felt like I always thought of New Nightmare as like his practice run mm -hmm. I was like okay these are ideas he's clearly interested in working with it just didn't quite gel together um with the culture at the time right but I kind of like your interpretation a bit better that New Nightmare was going like a step beyond Scream. Yeah. And it needed Scream first for people to really get it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but actually Craven at this time, he was um, doing pre-production. He was supposed to do a remake of The Haunting. <laughs> well, we know how the, the, that eventually, that Haunting remake eventually turned out. <laughs> you sure do. Thank you, Jan DeBot. Owen Wilson. Um, but um yeah so he had that on his docket and he was also considering after finishing that that he was going to step away from horror um because he felt that his career had been built on uh killing women on screen and he was very worried that that was going to define his legacy um and that um the sort of overall misogynistic tone of horror in the 90s was not something he wanted to be a part of. Um, and so Weinstein takes the screenplay then and he approaches a couple other uh, big name directors, Robert Rodriguez, Danny Boyle, uh, George Romero and Sam Raimi. Um, but all of them didn't really get 
the movie, they all thought it was purely a comedy. Um, and Weinstein was like, well, no, it's mm-hmm. horror and comedy and satire and blah, 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 blah. So he keeps offering it to Craven um, and Craven keeps passing on it. Um, even though production on the haunting remake ends up completely falling apart uh, and won't get back together for another couple of years. So he's not attached to that anymore. Then a little, uh, little known star at the time by the name of uh, Drew Barrymore, she signs on at her own request. She'd seen the script from her agent and was very interested in the movie. So she signs on. Craven hears about this and the fact that an established actress is interested in being a part of this really makes him reconsider. And so once he gets that news, he decides to accept the offer to direct um, and sort of, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to make a very concerted effort to handle the female characters in this movie with care. So, um, Barrymore, uh, as many people know, she is the granddaughter of the legendary actor John Barrymore from the Barrymore acting family. Um, Lots of them involved in the movie business and Hollywood for a long, long time. Um, She was made famous in her own right because of her uh, role in Steven Spielberg's E.T. When she signs on, she's originally set to play Sydney. Um, and you know, her involvement draws all these other notable, um, talented actors, popular actors at the time sort of see that as a sign that this is something they can participate in too, um, which was very unusual for horror in the mid nineties because the genre had been getting such negative critical reception and because there often weren't huge budgets for these movies. So people couldn't be paid a lot, but Shortly before filming begins, Drew Barrymore drops out of the lead role because of some unexpected commitments that she has, but she does agree to play the smaller role of Casey Becker in the cold open. The studio says, yes, this can, this is fine, this works because we can still use, you know, her status to promotional and marketing advantage. She's on the, she's like on the big poster. She um, is. It's like, it's her, like front and center. Yeah. Um, so they get really excited about that. Williamson and Craven are also kind of excited at the idea because they get to kill their big star in the first 20 minutes of the movie and show the audience that no one was going to be safe. Which I, I, you know, it's later in the analysis, but um, basically that was a huge um, part of, you know, what made it work so much as both a horror film and a comedy satire. Huge, huge. Um, Just like as like a quick thing now here at this moment of the discussion, what do you think, how do you think Drew Barrymore would have done as Sydney? And what would that have like changed? Um, I think, you know, and this is purely off of like, probably aesthetics 
but I feel like it it kind of makes Sydney a little bit less like Neve plays her very um introverted kind of shy like Tatum comes across as being sort of her outgoing friend who's maybe like trying to get her to do things all the time and I feel like with Drew Barrymore it would feel very much like having two Tatums almost Mm. um like I just feel like Drew Barrymore would have an energy there that um you know might have not been wrong it just would have been different um you know that's not to say that she can't do the sort of melancholy aspects of it but with Drew Barrymore I see that character and especially like you know because you know Drew Barrymore is a star like she's a huge star I think it's hard to ever tamper down somebody like that in a film and have them play a character that's not just oozing charisma yeah that yeah that's a really good point like she's so bubbly yeah she's so big just sort of just like in her energy that yeah, I think we would have totally lost that demure side of Sydney. Yeah. It's interesting to think about, but I think it kind of worked out for the best. Yeah. Well, and that's how I always feel about these things. Like, you know, after you see it, you're like, I can't imagine anyone else doing this. And, you know, yeah. who knows in what parallel universe Drew Barrymore did actually play Sydney and what that movie is. But yeah. Yeah. With, who knows? Um, but yeah, so obviously, um, you know, needing a new Sydney, um, Craven uh, asks uh, Nev Campbell to audition um, after seeing her in the hit 90s cult TV show, Party of Five. Um, and uh, Campbell's kind of, she's kind of reluctant to do another horror film so soon after the craft. Um, but after her audition for Sydney, she ends up feeling more confident. She feels really connected to the character. So when they offer her the role, she accepts right there on the spot. Um, meanwhile, for the other huge female lead, um, Brooke Shields and Janine Garofalo were the top two contenders. Imagining Brooke Shields is. So I was going to say, talk about an alternate universe. <laughs> Janine Garofalo, I think could have played it mm-hmm. Brooke Shields I'm not so sure yeah um, I don't know I mean like I you know seeing here that you know um you know that Courtney Cox like you know had lobbied for it because she wanted to play kind of the opposite of Monica I feel like that comes yes. through in that she was really trying to play just like a scummy character because <laughs> you know like Gail is very unlikable in the first film like she's yeah. just total you know bitch to to Sydney and you know is very callous towards yeah. you know everything that's going on um and I feel like having that drive to like want to be the opposite of Monica but at the same time you can kind of see how like it's kind of like some sort of bizarro world version of Monica where like the times that she has gotten a little bit like on edge like exploded <laughs> but um <laughs> You know, I think that Courtney Cox just does such a great job, like, and, you know, this is a character who I think, you know, throughout the entire franchise, like, has, like, a real arc, because she goes from basically yeah. villain to to ally throughout the um, first three films. Yeah. And even, I love what they do with her in four, too, where she's sort of, like, unmoored, mm-hmm. because she doesn't, she's like, well, now, you know, she's married to Dewey and she lives in Woodsboro and she's like not the hot shot 
reporter we meet in this movie and she doesn't she's like well what do I do with myself now you know like she's trying to write she can't come up with anything like Gail is the one of the three who I feel like has the most interesting complete arc yeah um so yeah good on Courtney Cox she saw herself in the role she lobbied for it and there you go um Rose McGowan was cast next as Tatum, um, according to the casting director for her ability to embody spunkiness, cynicism, and innocence all at once in the character. Yeah, see it. Uh, yeah. Um, this strong uh, female cast um, has often been cited as a reason why Scream drew a significant female audience at the time and remains very popular among female horror fans. Um, maybe get into some of that analysis later, mm-hmm. just something to think about. Um, as for the gentleman, Skeet Ulrich was uh, determined by casting to be perfect, quote unquote, for the role of Billy Loomis. Uh, and producers loved his resemblance to Johnny Depp from Nightmare on Elm Street as so, another nod. To the horror. interesting thing about Skeet Ulrich and this character is like in the script, Billy is written basically as what the boyfriend character is in Scream 2. Mm. Like his character is very um, much like, you know, football star, class president, like, you know, the nice guy, you know, all this other stuff. And it seems like after Skeet Ulrich, they decided to take it into more of that, like, he's kind of a creep, you don't really trust him. Like, yeah. you know, and a couple things like come up where like, there's still that, that like holdover from that version, you know, like, um, you know, the, the two women in the bathroom just talking shit about Sydney mentioned like um, her bubble butt boyfriend and that sort of thing. Like, so there's yeah. some like little lines that are from that incarnation of the character, but it definitely like that character was recycled um, in Scream 2. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because Billy doesn't strike me as like I'm like, oh, he's like not he's not on the football team or anything, you know, he's not like class right. president. Like he has more of like skater boy right, you know, vibes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but uh Ulrich and uh Campbell, they had worked together on uh the craft, of course. Um, and so both of them have talked about like how helpful that was when working on screen because, you know, it helped, you know, they were able to be comfortable with each other um, while working on this movie. Uh, David Arquette had actually been approached by the studio for Billy, um, but then he asked if he could read for Dewey instead. And uh, Craven was very impressed by his um, softer sort of funnier interpretation of the character which um he's described in the screenplay Dewey as being more like hunky um and so Craven was sort of like oh I like this approach better and offered the role to David Arquette um I I truly can't picture a Scream franchise with a hunky Dewey with a hunky Dewey I'm just like, I don't know if it's just because, you know, obviously we have what we have, but I'm just like, that doesn't make any sense. No. Well, and um, in the screenplay as well, you know, at the end, Sydney ends up with Randy. 
like they do end up right. together um and that didn't happen so no it's interesting to see the changes yeah from start to finish uh matthew lillard was cast by chance um because he was accompanying his then girlfriend at the time to an unrelated audition in the same building that the um scream auditions were happening in and the casting director, Lisa Beach, uh, saw him waiting in the hallway and asked him to audition for Stu, which he apparently like totally nailed. And they were like, great, it's yours. So interesting to think that like, that just was sort of was like happenstance, you know? Yeah. Well, I imagine her, she was like, hey, are you, it's like, yeah, like, you know, he's there and like, like, yes, I'm an actor, but I'm not here because I'm auditioning for him. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she's like, oh, well, you're gonna. <laughs> you're gonna audition. Um, uh, the role of Randy was, um, apparently there was a lot of back and forth be between whether or not to cast Jamie Kennedy or Brecken Meyer. Um, and the studio favored Kennedy, um, even though he had not really been in anything else major beforehand, um, they sort of took a chance. And then Roger L. Jackson, who is the voice of Ghostface, um, he was not allowed to meet or interact with any of the other cast um, because Wes Craven did not want them to be able to associate a face with the menacing voice that they were hearing. So creepy. Very creepy, yeah. Um, because, which is unusual for this um, type of work on film sets, uh, Jackson was on set, um, concealed like from the cast while they were filming, but he was on the phone with them, speaking you know, to the actors to help aid them in their performances and give some authenticity. Normally, like when you're filming a phone conversation, there's nobody on the other end. Right. And those are filmed separately but he was actually there, which was kind of cool. So uh, principal photography for uh, the film goes from April 15th to June 8th of 1996 under a budget of $15 million, taking place in Sonoma County in California in the cities of Santa Rosa, Healdsburg and Tomales Bay. The Weinsteins had initially pushed to film in Vancouver in order to save a million dollars on the budget. But Craven was very insistent that the film need to look American. And um, this led to some tension. Apparently he was almost fired over this. I feel like in the grand scheme of things, a million dollars in a $15 million budget, like who cares? <laughs> but I don't know. Right? Like, it's crazy to say that, but it's like, that seems like penny pinching. Yeah. Um, so, the Santa Rosa High School was approached uh, to stand in for Woodsboro High, but the school um, got very offended at the violence in the screenplay, um, particularly that it was against teenage children and the dark dialogue. They ended up causing a stir that like the local newspaper picked up and started criticizing the production. A lot of parents got in a big tizzy. Um, you know, there ends up becoming this whole divide apparently in the town of Santa Rosa, because you have some people arguing for the economic benefits that filming would provide to the town and other people being like really offended that such a violent movie would be filmed in their backyards. And eventually it reaches the point that 
um, a town hall gets scheduled to debate the issue. And it's supposed to take place on April 16th, which is the day after filming was going to begin. Uh, Wes Craven is like, I'm not going to that. I like, we're not delaying filming. I have shit to do. <laughs> and um, so he commences on schedule. Uh, on April 15th, they start filming the opening scene that takes five days. Um, so he's not at this weird town hall debate in any way. Um, and I don't know if it was because he wasn't there or what the deal was, but the school ends up denying permission um, for production to film there. So uh, the Sonoma Community Center stood in for the school instead. And in the credits, uh, you can actually see um, there's a line that says, no thanks whatsoever to the Santa Rosa High School Board of Education, <laughs> which I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> Get it in. Um, the iconic Ghostface costume was actually just selected off the rack at the Halloween store, uh, just like in the film itself. Um, the Weinsteins did not like the mask at all because they didn't think it was scary. Um, and they actually got really concerned over the film itself, because they were watching the dailies from like the opening sequence. And they're like, this isn't what we want. They apparently seriously considered firing uh, Wes Craven until uh, Craven came in with uh, the film's editor, Patrick Lussier, and showed them a work print of the first 13 minutes of the film to assuage their fears. And that worked. Um, the third act of the film, um, everything that takes place at Stu's house, is 40 minutes long. Um, it took 21 nights to film and was reportedly one of the most intense emotional and physical shoots that many of the cast and crew had ever done. And so they printed up shirts that said, I survived scene 118, <laughs> which was the official uh, title for the scene in the screenplay. And uh, I guess many of them still like have that shirt to this day as a badge of honor. <clears throat> yeah. Um, it's also at around this time that the original uh, DP, Mark Irwin was fired. He was fired one week before the end of shooting um, because they were looking at his uh, daily footage um, from the finale and a bunch of it was out of focus, which means it wasn't gonna be usable in the final film. And so Erwin was instructed to fire his camera crew, but he fired back and said, well, then you're gonna have to get rid of me too. Like, I'm not gonna do it. So the producers were like, okay, okay. and they fired him. <laughs> um, and he was replaced with Peter Deming who finished the final week of the film. Uh, the special effects in Scream were handled by KNB. Um, the team was Howard Berger, Robert Kurtzman, and Greg Nicotero, many of whom will know from The Walking Dead. Their very first task was to come up with a mask. Um, and they didn't really have anything to work with because in the screenplay, all it says is that the antagonist is a masked killer. There's no description of what the mask is supposed to look like. 
So, um, you know, they went and got that bunch of Halloween costumes off the rack. Um, they were looking at a bunch of those, but Dimension didn't want to use something that they didn't own the image to. So they tried creating some molds of some stuff to create original designs, but then Craven didn't like any of the original designs. So he convinced Dimension to pay um, Fun World costumes for the right to use their father death, death mask, uh, which we now all know as Ghostface. Which you see that in, it's in the, you know, the dumb reporter who's like, look, anyone yeah. can buy one. And, you know, is like, throwing the mask around on screen and it's labeled father death on the yeah that was apparently just the real thing from the store hilarious i know right um so yeah so once filming is finished uh craven's in editing for about two months um which for a film like this is kind of long because he keeps running into conflicts with the um the mpaa over the film's rating Dimension really wanted to avoid the dreaded NC-17 rating, which is considered like the suicide rating because um, most theaters don't want to show a movie like that. Um, most distributors won't make as many copies of that. And so they really wanted that R. But, you know, Craven didn't want to remove anything that he felt was key to the film and reduce the quality of the overall production. So there was a lot of back and forth um, at one point, the MPA comes to Craven about the opening scene, and they're like, there's too much here. And Wes Craven actually lied to them and said that he didn't have another take of the opening scene. Um, so there wouldn't be anything to replace it. And so the MPA was like, okay, we'll allow it then. It's interesting thinking about that stuff, having seen Censor, you know? And yeah. Like the like you know all the scenes where they're sitting there watching horror movies and they're just scribbling down like different like basically like bad things that happen right <laughs> they're like oh use of you know blood here or, you know yeah or like titties or yeah. yeah um yeah i just love the idea that he was like oh i don't have anything else yeah <laughs> um other scenes that apparently had to be modified were when Steve is gutted during the opening, um, when Kenny's throat is slit, uh, when Tatum's head is crushed, and there was a note that they had to know that there was no blood um, that could be seen flowing or dripping during the um, finale when Billy and Stu start to stab each other. Flowing or dripping? See, shit like that is- It never really occurred to me before. <laughs> Because, but I'm like, oh yeah, it's just kind of right? smeared. It's but it's smeared true. everywhere. I was like, oh, that's true. We don't. It's smeared everywhere, but we don't actually see it like oozing out of them right. or like dripping on the floor or anything. But yeah, it's just like, oh yeah, it's like there one is a minute lot of blood, there, but there's no like, yeah, right. There's no like moving blood. Yeah. yeah, that's a weird line to have. Like, and again, going back to having seen sensor, like, and the way that they were like. Oh, there's an extra five seconds of of blood here yeah. or something. Like they're like funny little notes that they write. Which is apparently true. Yeah. <laughs> Man. So, so yeah, so there's this back and forth goes on for weeks. Eventually Bob Weinstein goes to the MPAA and he kind of explains that 
the film is not meant to be um, like a glorification of violence, but that it's satirical in nature, that it's comedy just as much as it is horror and that it's commentary as well. And that convinces the MPAA that it's not just like a yay violence thing. Mm -hmm. And so they're finally granted the R rating that they wanted. The interesting thing about it is I never thought of Scream as particularly gory. Like it's definitely, it's definitely like, you know, it's obviously violent. Like people, many people are murdered. There's a lot of talk of death and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, I don't know, like, again, if it goes back to like, oh yeah, in the nineties, it was considered, you know, whatever. But like, I just never thought of it as particularly like gross or, or gory or anything like that. No, I'm totally with you. I mean, like, like, I guess the goriest part is when Steve gets his, his like intestines ripped out in the beginning. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like the opening kind of with Steve. And when we see Casey hanging from the tree, Mm -hmm. you know, and her, her intestines are coming out of her, but other than Yeah, there's not really, there's not really too much beyond that. Yeah. And again, I mean, maybe it goes back to them being like, there can be no flowing blood. (laughs) Yeah. Weird thing to be really concerned about, but uh, they were. All right. so, so yeah, and oh, and of course, also, you know, very the end of production. Um, I, I can't remember if it was around the same time when they like fired the the DP or if it was before that. Uh, I'm not sure, but the Weinstein's um, make the decision that they want to change the title of the movie. Mm-hmm. from scary movie to scream which is of course now um and williamson and craven are very much um against this idea and they they tried it i think the wine scenes come back with like something that like well, it's not just a scary movie, so we shouldn't call it scary movie because it's also a comedy or something weird like that or whatever. Um, and as the producers, they do have authority, so the title gets changed to Scream. Supposedly, it was a nod to the Michael Jackson song, Scream. Like, that's why they wanted to change it to that. It's weird. I like Scream better than Scary Movie. Like, I think Scary Movie's very on the nose. Like, I like the idea. Like, Scream, to me, like, evokes more of, mm. like, the, the theme beyond just like I mean like scary movie would have also worked too that would have been fine but I like scream like I think like that's like just such a perfect like sort of um way to hit the theme of like everything they were trying to do with it and then you know like the ghost face mask you know obviously looks a lot like the scream painting and yeah that has worked out well yeah so yeah I've gone back and forth over the years I'm like if I thought that scary movie would be a better title um but that's those are some really good points you bring up I do think now obviously it's hard to yeah imagine that it wouldn't be it um and even Craven and Williamson ended up saying that you know like upon reflection like with hindsight they realized it was the right move to change the title Mm -hmm. um 
But I think we can all agree it's a damn good thing they didn't call it stab. Stab. <laughs> stab. And so final production notes is just to mention that the film was scored by Marco Beltrami. This was his very first feature film that he scored. Um, Craven was looking for someone new. He wanted like brand new composers for the film. He was really impressed when Beltrami came in. I think he was having potential um, composers score the opening scene, mm-hmm. um, the Casey Becker scene. And uh, he was really impressed with what Beltrami came up with. Now Marco Beltrami is considered one of Hollywood's like longstanding composers over the last like 25, 26, 27 years, whatever. He's composed 98 films. It's like probably like just a coincidence because if you compose that many films, obviously you're going to have some repeats, but he was also the composer on Hellboy, which also utilized Red Right Hand. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yes, yes, because Nick Cave's Red Right Hand, which is Mm -hmm. featured in this movie, has very much become the unofficial theme song of the franchise. Um, Red Right Hand. (laughs) The other most recognizable track is probably Sid- Sydney's Lament mm. um, which has also been used in every like, sequel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, I think about it with uh, specifically in Scream 2 after the party where a couple people get like stabbed um, and she's like staring at the, the open door and it's like a slow like zoom. Oh yeah. And she looks so distraught. <laughs> yeah. That movie's so dramatic. I love it. it really is. That, that between that and the um, Cassandra. Oh my God, I love that scene. <laughs> the entire sequence of her doing the, the dance or whatever. No crime have I committed. <laughs> she, she went from like sitting in the, the audience <laughs> to being in full costume and makeup. <laughs> like that. Like it was the whole scene. And then they, he was like, all right, now get up there and do your thing. And we cut to the stage and show. And we cut to the thing, yeah. <laughs> I, can't, when I, I can't wait when we cover that movie. I just, this is a discussion for another time, but I'm like, at what point was there any indication that Sydney was like into theater and acting? Well, cause there's none in this movie. Yeah. There's none. And then all of a sudden she's a theater major and she's starring yeah. in their production of Cassandra. And in college, like, I'm like, oh, wait, what? Oh. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, we will, we will really get into that. It's uh, whenever that, we cover Scream 2. Yes, that and the lack of anyone ever mentioning ever again that Tatum was a person who existed. <laughs> Poor Tatum. Including She's her brother. Her brother oh. who's like, um, you know, and Sydney's like, oh yeah, like Dewey's kind of our like surrogate brother. And I'm like, yeah, remember when he had an actual sister who got murdered? Right. Remember his real sister? If we could just quickly talk about that. Um, but yeah, so... I did just want to like quickly ask you though, like talking about the the music mm-hmm. and the movie and the idea of the score. Like for me, I don't think that Scream has a very distinctive sound to its score. No, I think the only one is Sydney's Lament, which is like yeah. sort of like little vocal, you know, the soprano just doing a sort of like melody line. Yeah. Like, because, you know, I just think it's kind of interesting because, like, aside from that, Mm -hmm. and, like, Red Right Hand, I don't know for sure, like, if you were to play me another random 
piece of music from Scream, I would be able to know that it was from Scream. Right. Whereas like, I'm thinking of all these other classic slashers and famous horror music where you play a couple chords and I'm like, I know what that's from. Right. And like Ghostface doesn't really have a recognizable in- entrance music or anything. Right. Like yeah. There's, we don't, Scream doesn't have like a, the Chi Chi Ha Ha's, you know? Chi Chi Ha Ha's or the, the Halloween synths or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Even like, even like other Craven stuff, like even the Nightmare on Elm Street, like you know like it it really doesn't have that um i'm not saying it needs it i just find it interesting yeah yeah and i feel like it's kind of on theme that it's like most notable song is like a song song you know what i mean like a repurposed um like you know pop rock whatever you want to call it song yeah there is also that um acoustic cover of don't fear the reaper i fucking love when it play. it's play, it's <laughs> unclear whether it's playing for us like what is it um or if sydney's non, yeah like non, to it. what do they call it non-diegetically non-diegetic yeah. yeah or like sydney's listening to it <laughs> and know, it's like a sultry know. version of the song and they're like kind yes. of like getting getting like hot and heavy and it's like and there's oh, i can't remember it now there's another horror movie not a huge one that also uses this cover. Um, but so yeah, I love, I, I, I always forget for some reason. Until, it's on the soundtrack. Like they listed it as yeah. one of the songs on there, but. But then when that scene comes up and he's there and he's playing it and I'm always like, nah. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of things that I think, I mean, like I think Don't Fear the Reaper isn't really associated with anything in particular like well halloween halloween and then because it plays in the car car. and then it's used non-diegetically at the beginning of um the stand miniseries oh yeah it is um or it might be playing on the radio who knows point is is that it plays during the opening credits of the stand yeah the original stand miniseries yeah yeah well yeah i mean i always assumed it was a like a quiet nod to halloween and Lori and Annie in the car but I guess I it also works even if it's not meant to nod in, into anything it also works just because like with Billy's the, yeah 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 I think about that a lot the uh sexy version that plays while Sydney's in her like 12 year old's night <laughs> um yeah the other thing I had a note I do and I don't know I would if I would recognize it out of context, but I think there's a very effective piece of music when um, when Mr. and Mrs. Becker get home mm-hmm. and they can't find Casey. Mm-hmm. And um, there there's some really and they're and they're like panicking and they're you know they're going around the house, where is she? Or they realize she's on the phone, but like what does that mean or whatever? Mm-hmm. There's some good music there that I feel like really heightens that scene. Well, and I was thinking about what you said about like having him audition composers by having them score that opening scene. And I feel like there's actually like a really like disarmingly emotional component to that score. Yeah. Like particularly that sequence, like, you know, when we see Becky getting dragged and, you know, um, when she gets chased down in slow-mo, like there's actually like very sort of like tragic sounding music to it. Yeah, it's hard to watch. Yeah. Yeah. So. 
so yeah, I think, I don't know, where, where do we land on the music? Like, because now we're kind of like, actually, yeah, some of it sticks out to us. No, it definitely, I think the, like, there's moments where, like, the decisions in it stand out, but, like, there's no, like, mm. you know, thing where I listen and say, like, oh, yeah, this is from screen, unless it's, you know, like, Sydney's Lament, and, you know, that's fine, um, you know, and I think, you know, Ghostface is such a charismatic, you know, killer that you don't even necessarily need yeah music and like and if you think about it like the music is the phone ringing you know the phone rings and you know and everyone's like oh shit that's a good point yeah yeah because that's our cue you know that makes us feel anxious and nervous yeah that's a great point awesome awesome so yeah let's um shall we i guess we'll maybe talk about the cast then sure okay um so we'll go through our roll call um the three main leads uh obviously come first in the billing and they go alphabetically people have always thought that because david arquette is first that that's a weird thing and they're like well nerve campbell's the lead um it's it's not like some weird stupid reason it's just the fact that like the three of them are regarded as the leads and he comes first alphabetically Mm. that's all but anyway (laughs) that's who we're starting with david arquette as deputy dewey riley um what are your thoughts (laughs) on this performance I mean, it's funny hearing now that they they pictured the character as sort of the hunky older brother. Yeah. Um, I'm like, how did they possibly get this so wrong? Like, obviously, this is what the character was he, supposed to be. Um, no, he's great. Um, and he's, like, one who I feel like throughout the series stays pretty, like, like, the character isn't static, but the way he's a doofus evolves. Yeah. And, like, you know, they don't just play him as, like, you know the slapstick guy like he actually like functions as as part of the plot and like an active yeah. character like he's not just like the guy who gets knocked out for 30 minutes while stuff's yes. going on um even though he is knocked out <laughs> for i mean in this one he gets stabbed i think in the back and that's when he gets his weird limp in the next one which yeah. is then which is then healed yeah. <laughs> because he gets stabbed again for the third yeah. yeah so yeah yeah I think I think he's he's so funny he's so sweet mm-hmm. in this portrayal of Dewey um no matter how many times I've seen this movie when he um when Sydney's staying over, he picks up the phone. Yeah, he picks and then he picks up the hello. I laugh out loud every time. That delivery I feel like that was is like spot on. An ad lib, like they just kept was the it? camera. I feel like it had to have been like they just kept the camera going for like an extra 10 seconds. Cause he just picks well, up and he's like, hello. And then they'll cut <laughs> It's so good. And I do I do know that Craven um like as a director, he usually he usually gives his actors a lot of room mm-hmm. to sort of like improv and do different stuff 
on set. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was like Arquette's choice. <laughs> like I imagine probably the hello was part of the script, but the delivery of it like as a weird yeah. <laughs> hello. <laughs> He's so good. And and like you were saying, you brought up a good point about like um Dewey being like doofy but not like incompetent right sort of or whatever because like I feel like so often in horror films like you get that keystone cop thing where like the cops make really stupid decisions or like they're they're always like fumbling and dropping the ball because it's like the plot demands that they not be helpful to like keep the heroes in danger but like that's not how they handle Dewey in this franchise like he is competent and he does go up against the killer. Mm-hmm. And like when he's sidelined, it's because he's been attacked, not because of his own like- Because, oh the- man, I forgot to change my tire. <laughs> yeah, and I find that really refreshing. And I feel like that's what a lot of people want to do when they write like the bumbling cop, but a lot of people don't do it right. Right. So, all right. So next up we've got no. Neve. I know it's normally pronounced Neve, but I feel it's, like I have to remind myself that it's Neve because in my brain I say Nev. I feel like, it, yeah, I know like the name itself is normally Neve, but then I've also feel like I've seen people like, oh, well, she pronounces it Nev. Yeah. Whatever. I have, Nev Neve. Nev Neve Campbell uh, as Sydney Prescott. Again, um, the Lady Gaga gift. Fantastic. Amazing. Fantastic. Amazing. I think what I love about her performance is that she gives distraught without ever going over the top. Right. Which I feel like a lot of final girls actresses tend to do. Um, And I mean, like, obviously the character of Sydney is the anchor for these films. So like, you really have to nail it. And she does. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it definitely is like, you know, she, when she's in danger, you feel that she's in danger without her ever feeling helpless or feeling like, yeah, getting annoyed <laughs> at her and being like, you know what, actually. <laughs> <laughs> right. You, you know what? <laughs> um, and I feel like, yeah, like there's a lot of like nuance to it. And again, going back to the conversation about, you know, if Drew Barrymore, you know, what would the character look like? You know, and not to say that Drew Barrymore wouldn't bring nuance, but it would be a different sort of layers to the character. Like, I feel like Nev Campbell is very much the girl next door in a way that is like real. Like, I know Hollywood yes. has an idea of what the girl next door is, but then I'm like, no, like I could picture like Nev Campbell living next door to me. Right. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, like, yeah. oh, yeah. She's, she's that like, kid who had the weird, you know, her mom got murdered. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, oh, what a weirdo. But yeah. like, oh, you know, she's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she she definitely, there's something she does in her work with this character where like, we understand that Sydney is still both really innocent while still being really burdened by what mm-hmm. happened to her. And I don't know that like, I, maybe Drew Barrymore could have pulled that off, but I don't think just any old actress could have. 
No, and I think, again, part of the issue you have with Drew Barrymore is the expectation of what people think Mm. that she would bring to it. And, you know, like, would she even be allowed to have the sort of performance that uh, Nev Campbell did? Because it's like everything that I, you know, like, I think you get that all with Casey in the beginning. Like, that's like the character that people expect at that time when they see Drew Barrymore. Yeah, because you're like, oh, here's our MC. Yeah. Like, yeah, she's funny and confident and whatever. Playing with the knives. <laughs> well, she's right, yeah. Her popcorn because she's gonna she's put on the she's playing with the popcorn. Da, 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 da. And she's doing, dude, I was fascinated with Jiffy Pop after I saw this movie. So my mom bought me a bunch of Jiffy Pops like after I saw this movie and like was like, oh, like what? And my mom was like, oh yeah, that was a thing. Came home from the grocery store with like five of them. Oh, yeah, because like I, we never had Jiffy Pop. No, we used you the know, microwave. We, yeah, we did microwave popcorn, and so I, I feel like I definitely had this moment where I was just like, "What is that?" And like, <laughs> how do I get one? Yeah, <laughs> the giant bubble. Like, yeah, almost... <laughs> so great, right? Like... <laughs> yeah. So amazing. Yeah. Um. And then, of course, our our other of the of um, the big three, I, as I guess people tend to think of them now, is Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers. Love it. Um, this was the movie where she had the neon suit. Yeah. In the next one, she has the streaks in her hair. She's got the red streaks. The third one, she's got the bangs. The bangs. Something's always going on with Gail. I know. It's finally at Scream 4, it's like, all right. She's a human. <laughs> Everything here seems okay. Yeah. Um, what I love for... Cox, Cox is good, I think. Thumbs mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Um, what I love about Gail, how she's written, how Cox performs her, how everything just sort of comes together is that she's a bitch as I'm putting in quotes that only you can see. Yeah. Um, but the movie never apologizes for that. Right. Like it's just, it's, yeah, it's like, there's never a moment where she was like, I was wrong, or I guess, you know, and the, the thing is that she's not yeah. a bitch in the way that it's like, you know, like a, a misogynist might think about it. It's like, because right. she's like, you know, the way she's behaving and, you know, the fact that she's putting, um, you know the journalism above the fact that they're human beings like it's not a commentary on her as a person so much as her as like the epitome of journalists at this time right right and I love that like she just gets to be unapologetically like ambitious and mm-hmm. like um kind of kind of maybe skeevy um and and what she does to get what she wants um but that we also in the movie get to see her be like genuinely soft Mm -hmm. you know because she has this growing interest in Dewey because at first we think oh she's just using him to get close to the investigation but when they're alone in the woods and they have that moment it's kind of like oh this is really nice Mm -hmm. and like we see the softer side of her but it's not like a weird we're trying to redeem her from the earlier thing of the movie. Like, no, she's still Gail. 
Yeah. It's just, we're showing you how complex she is as a character. Right. And like, it's Gail that saves the day. Yeah, because she yeah. Uh, she shows up and has the safety on. But Right, exactly. And, <laughs> you know, it's not like she and Sydney then suddenly have this like, oh, now we're like sisters bonded forever moment. Mm-hmm. Like, no, that's yeah. not like shoehorned in at the end of the movie. And I kind of the next love one, that. they're not really... You know, they talk because they have to, but... They have to, right. Yeah, exactly. It's not really until three... Right. ...that we understand that they're, like, on okay terms with each other. Yeah. And then by four, that they are friends. Yeah. Yeah. And I love... I don't know, I love that, because I feel like a lesser movie or weaker writing would have them, like... And now everything's fine, because we've been through this together. Like holding hands. Yeah, because the last shot is Gail like covered in bruises and blood getting ready to like. And still reporting. Report. Yeah. yeah. I just think that's so great. Yeah. Um, and we talked about how Courtney Cox sought out production. Of course, of course, of course. All right. Moving into the next of the primary cast, we have Matthew Lillard as Stu Mocker. King. <laughs> <laughs> amazing um talk about delivery yeah um yeah he's he's nuts in this movie and i don't know how else you could do it i i think he might be my favorite performance in this movie yeah well and i was thinking about this because i feel like he's having like a renaissance right now where everyone's like remember that matthew lillard is like unsung like one of the best actors of his generation dude he's so good no he i i think he's fantastic and like looking at this and thinking about like the character that he played in like um twin peaks the return yeah like that's like two (laughs) different versions like he was able to pull off two different versions of just straight up dangerous unhinged yeah but and then also like um I don't know. Did you watch? Did you watch Good Girls at all? No. With Christina Hendricks. Well, he's in that, mm-hmm. and his character is super different from no. Stu. And I can't remember the character from The Return. Um, the principal guy. Yeah. And then you know well, he obviously played Shaggy. He was in Thirteen right. Ghosts. Exactly. He's so good. I think. Yeah. I I truly do think he is the MVP of this movie for me, just because like. I don't know he's so crazy and he's so expressive and he's so over the top but it works right it just it makes sense for how he does it and um speaking of ad libs I, I do believe hit me with the phone dick wasn't it yes <laughs> I was just gonna say like preparing for this episode I saw so much you know because Craven allowed them to ad lib and to improv and do what they felt was right for the scene like apparently a ton of those now really famous lines in the finale were all Matthew Lillard. Yeah. Just like coming up with that stuff in the moment or whatever. Boom, dude. Yes! <laughs> and he's so good. It's sort of like, I don't know, Stu is, as a character is very tragic because like 
I get the sense that like without Billy, he wouldn't have really done this. No, he wouldn't have like escalated to like, he clearly like has some sort of like emotional distress underneath that would have allowed somebody to do Totally. And it, and it's not an excuse for what Stu does. Yeah. But I do think there is something, uh, you know, interesting about the way he says peer pressure, you know, and he says it as a joke, but it's like, no, if Billy hadn't done anything, he probably would have gone on and lived a normal life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I do really love that. And I think, you know, like you were saying, you, you find that no motives are scarier. You know, they, they bring up in the movie that motives are incidental and it's just like Matthew Lillard, I think really was tuned into that. Yeah. When he was doing what he did um, in that scene. My parents are going to be so mad at me. (laughs) Did you really call the police? Um, all right. So after him in uh, the billing order, we have Rose McGowan as Tatum Riley. Um, I can, I can start with, with her. I think, um, she's exactly what they casted her for. Like, Mm -hmm. I think she does a great job of like showing us the cynical side of Tatum while balancing that with a, like, um, I don't know. I don't know if innocence is the right word, but sort of just like a. What I thought of it is like kind of like genuineness. Like there are times when mm. like she really comes, like she's very protective of Sydney and she, you know, is like kind of loses that sort of like um, bubbly, you know, spunky facade and is like, you know, Sydney's friend. Like, you know, when she shows up in her car and you know, gets her out of the police station. And when she tells Sydney after this incident in the bathroom, she's like, all right, well, when you pee, I pee. Like, you know, we don't, you know, I'm not leaving you alone or anything like that. Yeah. Like, I feel like there's some like moments of like, okay, there's a genuine person under here beyond just a caricature. Yes, yes. Which I applaud her for. And I also applaud um, Kevin Williamson's writing for mm-hmm. because like, he's really good in all he does like I know what you did last summer the faculty Dawson's Creek scream at like the ensemble writing Mm -hmm. which is something I really admire because like throughout this movie we never feel like these characters exist just to be killed off right like happens in so many slashers like Tatum is a person Tatum is a fully fledged character like this movie is character Based. and she's killed very late and it sucks it sucks to watch her die yeah. like in a lesser slasher we really wouldn't think twice about it yeah um and so i really appreciate that about both what if the they writing... don't know that she got killed what's that <laughs> like what if they just don't know that she got killed like they think that she's oh my god because she was like it had nobody saw it like what if they just never found the body and or like well, Stuart billy like you know hid the body before anyone found it like maybe they just think that she like left no no sydney sees her body real quick remember she, oh <laughs> yeah when she's running around the when tray. she's running around the house yeah. i was like what if what if they oh no that out? would be too sad for tatum she already gets like erased from the rest of the movies <laughs> yeah um but rose mcgowan apparently um also 
uh, I, I came across an interview with her. I didn't, I wasn't able to read the whole thing, but she talked about how she really loved filming Scream because she was able to do a lot with the character that wasn't written on the mm-hmm. page. And she, she credits Wes Craven for that. Apparently he encouraged her to um, do that. And uh, she also had to dye her hair because she's naturally brunette and uh, Dimension did not want two brunettes. And <laughs> Nev Campbell was the lead, so she yeah. wasn't going to dye her hair. Hilarious. Yeah. Pretty, whatever. Um, next up, we have Ski Ulrich as Billy Loomis. It's interesting thinking about him in The Craft because he plays such a different character in The Craft, mm-hmm. which is probably a little bit closer, not quite, but to what the character was originally envisioned as. Cause he's yeah. a little bit, I mean, he's still kind of like a jerk in that, um, but he's like a little bit more like clean, you know, his hair is like, you know, not that sort of like greasy curtain hair look that's like right. a bad boy type vibe. And, you know, he just comes across as this like popular kid um so it's interesting how much of a total creep he plays in this yeah he definitely does and it's it's interesting because um and I think this is mentioned later which which we can we can get into but like Ulrich wasn't aware that there were supposed to be comedic satirical elements. I I put that in the fun production notes. Like, yeah, I'm sorry. I kind of no. You're fine. And it was I guess one of the first this first scene that he filmed was the scene at lunch where they at the fountain, right? Yeah, where they're talking yeah. about Casey Becker being killed, and he's like watching Kennedy and Mocker like just or not mocker jesus christ do mocker (laughs) um go back and forth about you know and he's like oh my god they're ruining this movie like why are they doing this like thinking that they were just being like assholes and then didn't realize that it was like a comedy this is not what you're supposed to do (laughs) Yeah. yeah um but i do i do find him very good i find him very menacing um particularly when he makes that turn right um you know where uh i guess the reveal basically the moment right when uh he's standing and he uh he like, shoots I, randy yeah yeah i find like, that we all go a little crazy sometimes or right and i'm like i really like the face acting that he does in that moment um you know, like kind of you were talking about like this sort of like this greasy angle to Billy, this sort of like thing that he's able to go back and forth between and that comes through. Um, Yeah, because as we kind of mentioned before, it was like, I don't think Billy was intended to be this way, but like what he brought to the character, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it really works. Next up, we have Jamie Kennedy as Randy Meeks. Great. Funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's from uh, around here by me, Upper Darby. Is he really? Yeah. Huh. That's cool. Um, Yeah, I think it's a good performance. It's it's kind of manic, but it works. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's so it's what's interesting to me, and I don't know if this is in the performance or the character, but I'm like, how is why is he friends with these people? Like he comes yeah. across as such like an outlier in their friend group. I was thinking about that a lot on the rewatch for this episode. I was like, this is an odd dynamic to me because it feels like they're not necessarily all part of the same social circle. Right. Because he comes across as kind of the film geek. And like for a minute, yeah. you think. Oh, like, well, maybe, you know, he's got a dynamic with Stu, so maybe he was Stu's friend who just hangs out with him, but then later when Stu visits him at the Blockbuster that he works at, like, it's very clearly... Oh, which? <laughs> my favorite character in the entire series. Oh, my God. Well, and then just doesn't, like, don't you, like, when they're at the store, like, don't you just get total recall to those right. dates? Yeah, when you would when... go and hope that there was behind the the case yes. there was a copy there yes like our our younger listeners if we have them like you just don't know it was like scrolling through netflix trying to figure out what to watch in person and it was, and it was like so russian better. roulette like because you could get that it, truly, really- it truly was yeah yeah i mean we would go like i don't know about you but like like sometimes we'd be there for like an hour yeah and then you'd be like oh my god the last person didn't rewind or like sometimes they put the wrong tape in the case Mm -hmm. um but yeah like when when they're there it's very much Stu and billy versus uh randy it feels like yeah which is which is interesting to me because Stu and randy clearly have a relationship that's close enough where randy feels comfortable telling Stu that he thinks billy is dangerous right i was saying yeah like yeah it's are clearly close enough that Randy feels comfortable like suggesting that Billy is the killer mm-hmm. and so I've always wondered like dynamic here like were Billy and Stu presenting that they weren't that close you know like Right, and like, how did Billy like? Why did Billy approach Stu about doing yeah. this? Like, yeah, like, were they concealing their relationship? And for our month, like, queer reading section, I've got a lot to go into about that. But yeah, yeah, it's it's just been interesting to me because, and even when you were saying about like Tatum and Sydney, Tatum seems like she would be um maybe like stereotypically popular and well liked and sydney doesn't quite come across that way to me mm-hmm. um but it's so it's interesting to me that they're really good friends i don't know it's just it's just interesting to think about i guess yeah and which you know like maybe it is more realistic cuz thinking about like my high school like there was no real like pop, like there was one or two who were like yes like these are the girls who get you know elected prom queen and president and that sort of thing but like one of our like most popular like girls in school as you would consider it was also like the drum major 
for interesting the band so like we had like a lot of blending without like really having like clicks Mm -hmm. but um it is such a strange little friend group and And I guess that's a good point like maybe like you know we we definitely get the idea that Woodsboro is a very small town Mm -hmm. and so like you know, maybe Woodsboro High, like it's it's small enough. Like, I mean, like I I know I went I went to a very small high school. Like, everybody knew each other, and there were like, whatever, like groupings and stuff or whatever. But it wasn't quite like I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I feel like you even get that a little bit in the second one because you've got um, Sarah Michelle Geller's character. Mm. in a sorority but then also like having an intense debate about like alien versus aliens right and like empire strikes back in this yeah 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 which is another thing i love about like um kevin williamson's writing and like the worlds that he creates like everybody is really witty Mm -hmm. and everybody like knows a lot of like pop culture references um that I think is really fun and that we see in Scream because yes, Randy is the, the film nerd, right? And he's the pop culture nerd and he has this, a bunch of knowledge about stuff or whatever, but all of the other characters also make references right. to pop culture and to horror films and stuff or whatever. Yeah, like Sydney makes a reference to the town that tried at sundown. Yeah. Which is somewhat obscure, I feel like. It's in mainstream. It's obscure unless you're a horror person. Yeah. Um, which is funny because Sydney tells Billy in her bedroom, or she says that somewhere, she's like, you know, oh no, when she thinks she's talking to Randy, she says, you know, I don't watch that shit. Yeah. It's like, but you knew what the town that dreaded sundown was. Yeah. So yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Um, all right, we got a little off topic there with Randy, but whatever. Um, next up in the main billing, um, we've got uh, three folks all together and that's W. Earl Brown as Kenny. Um, cameraman. Gail's cameraman. Uh, Joseph Whip as Sheriff Burke and uh, Leif Schreiber as Cotton Weary. In like a blink and you miss it. Yeah. Like it's more of a cameo than a... I know. I'm kind of truly surprised that he was included in the like picture main credits. Like he's not even actually in the film. We just see him in news footage that Sydney's watching. He has no dialogue. There's, yeah. Yeah. So in terms of like ranking his performance, I'm not going to. Yeah. He doesn't, yeah. He doesn't um, he walks out of the courtroom in handcuffs on the newsreel very well. Right. Not exactly demanding. Yeah. Um W. Earl Brown, though, I do find very endearing as Kenny. Yeah, I, I liked Kenny. Um, Kenny. Yeah. And what I like is that they actually kind of develop him as a character. Mm-hmm. Like um you know he's funny he has some cute lines there's the whole running joke where he's always snacking which kind of gets a little it gets a little fat phobic fat phobic um yeah but um yeah but like I don't know I'm just like again it's like in a lesser film like Kenny would just be like body fodder right 
Um, he again, he gets a lot of screen time before he is eventually uh, murked. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then um, with the MPAA, the reason they were concerned about his scene was apparently because um, they were concerned that W. Earl Brown's facial expressions when he gets his throat slit mm -hmm. um, were too realistic. They were like, it's too evocative. Like, it's going to disturb people. So it's just like, no, that's that's a good thing. Yeah. Like, we should be disturbed if someone has their throat slit. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then uh, just a little fun thing about Joseph Whip as Sheriff Burke. He plays um, the deputy cop in Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, fun. Yeah. So Wes, Wes Craven actually, like, I, I'm pretty sure I approached him and was like, you want a promotion to sheriff? <laughs> <laughs> so... So pretty cool. And then at the end of the main credits is Drew Barrymore. She gets the and um, as Casey Becker. Very, very emotional scene, as we've said. And it's interesting how she kind of develops this whole character in, I think it's like a 12 minute sequence, like, you know, where you get yeah. her answering the phone, she's kind of flirting with this guy, but also she has a boyfriend. So like, why was she flirting? <laughs> him like what's the story there yeah um you know it's, it's it's interesting it's a lot of and you know like people seem obviously like anyone getting murdered as you know is gonna freak people out but people seemed really upset that Casey got killed and it's huge yeah. news and um, oh it's really and and we alluded to this a little bit before but like one Drew Barrymore's performance is is very good um, and also because there's this element of like the parents coming home and being right there, mm -hmm. like her seeing them on the porch, but she can't right because she get got it out. Like, it's punched or whatever in the throat. Yeah, it's so tragic. It's so sad. Yeah. Um, and and the music and the way they do it and like we don't often see in horror films the after effect mm -hmm. of someone's murder. And we get that here, like parents seeing their child, their only child strung up and gutted on a tree. Like that's, that's some dark shit. Yeah. Um, and it's really effective. So, um, and of course, obviously, we also talked about the significance of the fact that it was Drew Barrymore and that mm -hmm. she, she stayed on to take this smaller role for the opening big part of why uh, the movie was what it was. So now we'll just quickly go through the rest of the named cast. Um, Roger Jackson, of course, uh, is the voice. Um, just a fun fact, he was originally intended to only be a placeholder for the voice of the killer. Uh, they were going to bring in somebody else in post-production to re-record the lines, but uh, Craven really liked the intelligent evil edge that Jackson brought to the performance. And so he kept it. Yeah, I can't imagine any other voice there. I mean, like that's, and that's what it is too, right? Like it feels like you're talking to an evil genius. Mm -hmm. That's that's totally it. And, and it's somehow like, everyone knew what the voice was, even though that everyone who had heard the voice had died. Yeah, well, except Sydney. Yeah, but she wouldn't have. But like, she probably wouldn't have 
yeah told them like oh yeah this is what it sounded like well unless it's well i guess i I truly just thought of this now they recovered the voice box from Stu, so they knew what it sounded like that was always a thing that was with it's still it's still kind of a stretch well, and that, and like who, like the details of Casey Becker dying in stab. Oh yeah. Like, nobody was there. Nobody saw all that. Right. Like, unless like somebody was tapping her phone. Right. It's like that. Okay. That for sure. Everybody involved in that night is dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally iconic. It, it's impossible to imagine the Scream series without Roger Jackson as the voice of Ghostface at this point. Um, so thank God Craven knew what he was doing. Uh, we have Kevin Patrick Walls as Stephen Orth. Died well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, David Booth and Carla Hatley as Mr. and Mrs. Becker. Sad. Tragic. Um, yeah, very sad. They do well. Uh, Lawrence Hecht as Neil Prescott. If there is a sort of bumbling idiot, I feel like it's him. Like right. he very much gets shoved out of the, you know, and it's because they want you to think he's a suspect for a really yeah. long time. But when he like tumbles out of the closet all tied up and Sydney's like, yeah. Dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I always thought was weird with Neil Prescott is um, when he comes to her room and he's like, I thought I heard screaming. <laughs> and then it's like you're not more concerned that you thought you heard your daughter screaming and she's like clearly holding the door in a way right and then, and then she- sydney also doesn't even offer a real excuse she's just like no there wasn't <laughs> yeah. no and he's just like oh, okay <laughs> all right but and he's fully dressed like yeah, she's in she's in pajamas and he's like in a denim jacket like ready to go right. out Right. Well, I guess it's like, is he leaving that night? I don't know if he's leaving because he gives her the instructions, but I assumed he like left the next morning because it's like clearly nine o'clock at night. Yeah. That's what I feel like if you're just casually watching, like, all right, he's leaving in the morning before she goes to school or something. Yeah. But then it's like, but then why is he fully dressed now? (laughs) And why is he leaving at nine o'clock at night? And why is he staying at the Radisson by the airport? (laughs) Yeah, by the Radisson by the airport. That doesn't quite make sense. Yeah, there's some there's some goofy but stuff yeah. with him. So yeah. Um, what if he's the killer in the new one? Could you imagine? We haven't seen him in like three movies or whatever. Yeah. No, like it was Neil Prescott. It was Neil Prescott. I you know what? If I'd be like, all right. That's yeah, fine. It's fine. Sell it to me. <laughs> Sell it to me. I'm like, you sold me Roman Bridger. So. Oh my God. That's the thing is, it's like that movie is ridiculous, but there are parts of it that I found like certain sequences that are like, you know what? That actually, yeah. It's, it's, I think it's to this good. day, that's the one I've seen the most. Interesting. Which is weird because <laughs> I rank it fourth. Yeah. <laughs> but what are you going to do? That'll also be really fun when we cover that one day. Yeah. Um, oh my god we take 20 minutes to talk about the bangs <laughs> who did hair and makeup for this <laughs> uh we've got lois saunders as mrs tate um, i think she's in the breakfast scene and she's wait, that's the other thing when she's like sydney there's a phone call for you like why would you like not <laughs> screen her calls a little bit more again nine ten o'clock at night she's just been attacked 
like and a man calls and says i want to talk to sydney and she's like here no 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 mrs tate is the english teacher oh mrs riley right riley anyway still that all stands no but i mean still the truth like your point is right (laughs) why would you ever yeah and Um, and i'd be like who is this yeah, and Sydney's like, like, who are you? How do you know she's here? Why Sydney asks, her? oh, is it my dad? And she's like, I don't know. Well, why don't you know? <laughs> don't answer, don't give her the phone. Yeah, um, after she's been attacked. Like, crazy. Yeah. Uh, English teacher's fine saying, Sydney, it's your turn. <laughs> yeah. And even in that one line, though, I'm like, oh, that's good line delivery. No, yeah, because you get the feeling that there's a lot, like, she's, like, conveying a little bit of, like, sadness and apprehension, yeah. and that sort of thing. Because, as we know, because Sydney's there, she's looking at the empty chair, like, Casey was Mrs. Tate's student, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, we have C.W. Morgan as Hank Loomis, Billy's he's father. Some, he's got some eyebrows. He does have some eyebrows. Every time I watch this movie, I'm like, this is who Maureen fooled around with? I know. <laughs> like, <laughs> seriously? Um, no, I think there's, like, a fair bit of interesting stuff in the one scene that he's in. Like, you kind of get the feeling. I mean, and, you know, you hear from Billy some stuff, too. But, like, you get the feeling right. that he was probably pretty hard on Billy. You know, very emotionally distant, potentially even abusive. Um, right. Especially you, after. Yeah. And you get all that. and mrs loomis left town yeah and like you get all that like a obviously billy fills us in at the end but i feel like in that scene where they're sitting together like it's just very uncomfortable like clearly billy's dad is like doesn't want to be there probably you know wouldn't have cared to show up um, right it's know. an inconvenience for sure yeah yeah and he like clearly also thinks like you know he's a little bit like why are you accusing my son but as soon as like one piece of evidence comes back he's like well what's that about but you know like he immediately turns and like yeah like there's there's something there where it's like how dare you how dare you how dare you but yeah but then when that comes up it's like we almost get this moment of like hmm I could see my son being responsible for this yeah yeah which I think it's so funny that like the main piece of evidence at that time was the fact that Billy had a cell phone and like today in Scream 5. Oh, I'm sorry. Was, Don't you mean a cellular telephone? A cellular telephone. <laughs> Everyone's got them. Um, <laughs> but in now Scream 5, Ghostface is like hacking into people's smart homes. <laughs> right? <laughs> unlocking their doors. <laughs> My, how things have changed. <laughs> that, that woman in the trailer who keeps her house way too warm oh yeah would everyone notice when the trailer goes? why is our house 74 degrees? Was like why <laughs> uh, all right all right so now we've got francis lee mccain as mrs riley it stands it still stands it still stands everything stands what are you doing also tatum weirdly has two twin beds in her bed i will never let this go why <laughs> Like, she has no other sibling besides Dewey, who has his own room because he comes out of it to pick up the phone. Yeah, because he he keeps. I'll never understand. Like, why wouldn't you just have Sydney, like, in a sleeping bag or on a cot? Right, like, like it's, it's either that it's always that way for some reason, or they <laughs> brought the beds in and made and constructed a twin bed for her. 
I don't understand. <laughs> oh man. Were they sleeping in like the guest room for some reason? Like both of them? I know, but it's way too personalized to be the guest room. Yeah. Like it's clearly Tatum's room. And also that would be stupid too if Tatum was also in the guest room. I mean, I guess exactly, maybe yeah. That would also be like be yeah, no, just the whole thing is, is like, what? <laughs> it's like, what's happening? What is this house is a mess. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, Troy Bishop and Ryan Kennedy as the expelled students. Come on. That's not fair. Not fair. That's, that's what doing? I remember of them. Yeah. Uh, Leonora Scalfo as the cheerleader. Is that the bitch who doesn't wash her hands in the back? She doesn't wash her hands and then she puts her finger in her mouth <laughs> for her lipstick. It's so gross. <laughs> yeah. And she calls her uh, like a, a lying sociopath or some other horrible thing. Yeah, she says some really mean things. It's not bothering to see if anyone else is in the bathroom. Because somebody's her clearly hair. in that stall. Right. And then Nancy Ann uh, Ritter as the girl in the bathroom, she also cracks me up. She's just like, where do you get this shit? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Amazing. Amazing. All right. And then after that, uh, there are two big cameos to talk about. Uh, Linda Blair as the reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Wes Craven as Fred the janitor. How uh, was my janitor at my school? <laughs> right. Like right. even beyond, you know, Freddy Krueger, like that's just a creepy guy. Right, yeah, he's got the hat, he's got Freddy's sweater. No, 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 unacceptable. And then uh, Henry Winkler plays Principal Arthur Himbury. So he strange. is uncredited. I mean, it's fine. It's just so uh, interesting, interesting little role. I mean, and, and again, I guess like they wanted the principal to seem like a suspect for like two hot seconds. Yeah. Um, but, uh, well, yeah. And like, he's very like handsy. Yeah. Which is I mean, like, he's like very... grabbing students. He like cuts the one shirt with the scissors. Yeah. And and when Sydney comes in for questioning, he like holds her chin. He's like, yeah, because oh. even the, the sheriff makes a kind of face at him. Yeah. And he's like, it. what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, very interesting character. Um, Henry Winkler, obviously, um, huge iconic actor. Lots of people will know him um, from Barry and Arrested Development. Um, of course, his major claim to fame is the Fonz. On Happy Days, Arthur Fonzarelli. Principal Henry's first name is Arthur. Mm. Um, you can see the um, when he opens that closet in his office, the Fonz's jacket is in there. Mm. Um, uh, Principal Henry, obviously a very 180 character to the Fonz. Um, and Dimension actually asked if Henry Winkler wouldn't mind going uncredited so as not to overshadow the younger cast. Um, and he, he said he was fine with that. So, yeah, but it is interesting to see him in a role like that. Yeah. All right. Um, I think we've got a couple fun production notes that, uh, 
are good to share right now. Uh, Miss Mel, what do you what do you got for us? Um, I mean, my big one was the uh, the one about Skeet Ulrich not knowing what film he was in. Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, but I can go through some of them here. Um, you know, the actors consistently just all have raved about working with Wes Craven, um, you know, which I think we've kind of touched on with, you know, his, the freedom he gave uh, the cast and, you know, like yeah. just the dedication to, to what they were doing. And um, Nev Campbell has said multiple times that he was her favorite director to work with. And I think when, you know, like the fourth one was coming out um, or after that, when people were talking about other screens, I think a lot of them said that they weren't really interested unless Wes Craven was uh, going to be a part of it. Yes, yes. And apparently um, uh, Nev Campbell, who was the last person to sign on for Scream, five scream 22 scream not to be confused with scream yeah <laughs> um, she apparently was very very reluctant because it you know it wasn't going to be Wes mm. and just the idea of his legacy and stuff or whatever um to come back for this this new one um because she's I don't know if you've ever like just seen interviews but like they apparently like really got along yeah which is great, you know, I love, I love hearing stories like that. Um, yeah, especially, like, you know, with what Wes wanted to do with Scream, where he didn't want to be the guy who murders women on, on screen to have such a good relationship with your yeah. leading uh, female protagonist and then have her basically, you know, say like, yeah, he was my favorite director to work with, so. Yeah, kind of a big deal, huh? Yeah. Um, we mentioned before, Ghostface is not actually known as Ghostface. He's just the killer. Um, it's Tatum who refers to him as Ghostface kind of like jokingly when she thinks Randy's playing a joke. Is it Randy? She thinks somebody's playing a joke on her. Um, I can't remember. Oh yeah, does name. she think it's Randy or does she think it's Stu? I think she thinks it's Stu, which is funny because it might be. Right, because that's I the think... one kill in the whole Scream franchise you can't apparently figure out which Who killer it? it was yeah i always assumed it was billy so did i um but yeah because i i think earlier in the film when sydney gets a call from ghostface she thinks it's randy like fucking around with her and that's what i'm thinking of so i think she thinks it's Stu, and she's like you better put that away before oh yeah before sid, sid sees it yeah. yeah um the scene in the bathroom with craig's mr craig's favorite character um, she's so it's so gross um it was not in the original script uh it was added to basically just create some tension um and give background on maureen um and her murder and her reputation in Ward woodsboro um as we mentioned Skeet that scene oh no go ahead no you're fine the bathroom scene um I'm glad it was added because I think it does achieve what it was meant to. Mm -hmm. um, but I do find myself wondering because I'm pretty sure it's Stu. In the bathroom. In the bathroom. But it might because she, because doesn't she talk to Billy like right before that? Does she talk to him right before that? Is that, I'm trying to think of when. When he, he's like, it's been a year, get over your mother's yeah. murder. Yeah, <laughs> get over your mother's murder. And um, I think it's, later that day 
Okay. Well, regardless if it's, I know it's all been figured out online. If it's Billy or Stu in the bathroom, I'm just like, so were they just waiting in there on the off chance that she might come into this bathroom? (laughs) This bathroom? I'm like, is this the only girl's bathroom in the school? Like, uh, like you're just hoping she'll come in? (laughs) Right. Um, As we mentioned before, Skeet Ulrich thought it was like some dark character study about a teen killer. (laughs) And clearly still played it that way. And I think it worked, um, but he apparently didn't realize it was as satirical as um, everyone else did. Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) In the uh, final scene, uh, Ulrich wore a protective vest under his shirt when Sydney stabs him with like the the metal tip of uh, the umbrella, which was a retractable prop. on the second take, the stunt woman playing Sydney missed the vest <laughs> and stabbed Ulrich <laughs> in the chest, impacting a wound he had from an open heart surgery. <laughs> Which is insane. Um, and his pain was so genuine that this was the take used in the film. So thanks for taking one for the team. He really did. I felt, I, I just discovered this fact yeah. for this episode in the research. I felt so bad. <laughs> it's like, like uh, not, not only did he actually get stabbed, but that it punctured a surgery wound. <laughs> like, yeah. Also, like, how did the how did you miss the? I don't know. I, don't, I guess I don't know the sizing of it to like fit under that because he's wearing kind of a small white t shirt. I know. I'm so I'm not sure. Like when they talk about a vest, I'm not sure exactly what they mean that he was wearing underneath that. Because he because it clearly wasn't like Kevlar or anything, right? Because it's just an undershirt. Yeah, yeah. Um, it makes me think of Viggo Mortensen breaking his foot. Um, oh, and he kicks two towers, right? Yeah, when he kicks the helmet. Although at least that he did to himself. (laughs) Could you imagine being the stunt woman to like? Could you imagine hit him? Um, and then fifty gallons of fake blood was used, which was made. I think uh, the pretty standard corn syrup and uh, food dye is the pretty standard concoction for fake blood. Yeah, definitely within the last thirty years, um, because it looks more realistic. Which they nod to when they're watching Halloween. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, the blood's too red. It doesn't look yeah. real. Which pisses me off. Because when they're talking about that, you know, when the, mm-hmm. the group of kids are watching Halloween, it's when Bob gets killed in the original. Mm-hmm. There is no blood in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> he was just like, waiting to on. make that comment throughout the entire movie and yeah. like, picks the one kill. <laughs> right. Right. Cool, 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 cool. All right, so Scream had its world premiere on December 18th, 1996, at the AMC Africa Theater in LA, followed by a wide theatrical release on December 20th, which was a pretty curious choice given the Christmas season, Um, but it was something that Bob Weinstein insisted on, actually. Um, He wanted to capitalize on teenagers and horror fans not having anything interesting for them according to him, to watch during the holiday season, which is obviously very family-centric. And so he felt that 
the movie would actually do really well at this time. Um, in its opening weekend, the film grossed only $6 million, um, coming in second for that weekend behind Beavis and Butthead Do America. <laughs> um, but after Christmas was over, it totally exploded uh, in its earnings, um, eventually culminating in a total worldwide gross of $173 million uh, against its $15 million budget. So quite the success. Um, and in a this, and something that seems absolutely unfathomable now, the film remained in theaters for eight months after its release. That's like until August. Yep. That's crazy. It's almost just keep yeah. it there for, for Halloween. I know, right? <laughs> like, that's like right up until I, like it was released on VHS, I'm pretty sure. And DVD, well, maybe not DVD at that point. But like, oh. yeah. Like that at the point it left theaters, like they were probably starting to promote Scream Two. I was gonna say like they were filming; they had to have like immediately done a turnaround on Scream Two. Mm -hmm. so. Isn't that wild? Um, Scream currently has a Rotten Tomatoes score of seventy nine percent, a Metacritic score of sixty five, an IMDb rating of seven point three and a letterboxed rating of four out of five. Um, I think all of that makes sense to me, except Metacritic, 65 seems low. Yeah, well, and that's the one that's got the weighted reviews, right? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. Like the thing is, is like, I've not met somebody who dislikes Scream, but I feel like it's something you know, especially retroactively, you know, since Metacritic obviously wasn't around when Scream came out, yeah. I feel like retroactively, it could be a thing where people are like, oh, well, it's cool to be like, well, actually, Scream was bad. Well, <laughs> and I feel like, and you, tell me if I'm wrong, but like, I feel like in the last couple years, there has been this thing where people have suddenly decided to shit on Scream. Yeah, well, and, then, and I'm like been doing that with a lot of like, I just feel like we're at the point where people like divisive opinions get attention. So they're like, here's this thing that's pretty universally beloved. And here's yeah. why it's actually trash. And like, you yeah. can say that about anything. Right. And I'm just like, I'm sorry. What, what did, did look at what was happening with horror in the 90s yeah no like, and i don't i don't like weigh any sort of like you know credence to stuff like that because it's like to me it's like you're saying it for the sake of saying it and anyone who even like yeah. decides like yeah like it's not a perfect like there's obviously little things here and there that like either don't make sense or like you can have opinions about something one way or another but like i just don't like i'm not here for the like <clears throat> the like keyboard cowboy like film critic yeah. who mm -hmm. you know thinks that you know they have some like hot new take on you know universally beloved film right yeah yeah and it's like yeah sure like everybody is entitled to their opinion I I think there are few opinions that are like 
across the board wrong, but the opinion that Scream is not a good movie is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, to that end, positive reviews um, from the time uh, cited the subversive deconstruction of the horror genre as a huge uh, positive for the film, calling the movie sly, witty, um, and very effective as a slasher, um, even surprisingly so. Um, people were impressed that the film was both scary and gruesome without being morbid, um, that it was clever, that it was intelligent with a stellar cast, well-written self-aware characters, and that it made smart use of violence in the movie which I think all still holds true today. That's the thing about Scream. It's aged pretty well. Yeah, and I feel like you get things where they come out and you're like, like this is something particularly I feel like with Buffy where, you know, because it did a lot of this stuff first, you know, now when you see it, it's not, you know, mm. as unique anymore. You know, it does feel like, oh yeah, like I don't know how well you know, this would be received now by somebody who's not watching it <clears throat> with that in like with that sort of like history and pop culture history in mind. Right. But I feel like Scream is something where like it's always going to be relevant. Like I think so. Yeah. Because it's it's really so unique in what it did. <clears throat> like and yeah, and again, like the fact that it it could be both a horror movie and a comedy, like a, a satire on horror movies. Like, I feel like so often you get stuff where it's like, not like, I think of like Cabin in the Woods where it's like, it's comedy, mm. but it's horror, but it really ends up being like either more of one or like just neither. Yeah. Um, like I don't find Cabin in the Woods very scary. I find it to be like it, I was like, oh yeah, this is an interesting concept and it's like violent and bloody but i don't think of it as scary i no. think of it as like a dark comedy um yeah but scream is something where it's like it is entirely like self-contained horror film that is also commentating on horror films and is winking at the audience the entire time right and it's like where are you ever gonna i mean obviously lots have other things have tried that you know, mm -hmm. with varying levels of success, but nothing has ever done it like Scream. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and so, yeah, so I think that's a good segue into like some further analysis of this film cool. and what it's um, done because it's, it's done so much. So I don't know, where do, where do we even start with this? Um. So yeah, so we mentioned before, like, basically, the state of horror in the 90s was very much like, slash wipe repeat, like, people weren't, <laughs> people weren't super into it. It was like a bunch of direct video sequels, things that were doing really well kind of got snapped up by like, the mainstream to be sort of, you know, like the more intelligent adult psychological thrillers and that sort of thing. Yeah. But what Scream, you know, and, you know, I don't know enough about pop culture of the 90s to, like, you know, make any assertion about, like, Scream being the first thing to do this, but it was definitely one of the biggest things to 
sort of like not in it obviously didn't invent you know metafiction or postmodernism but it was kind of one of the biggest mainstream examples of it at that point um like you had new nightmare which was very meta you know it's about Krueger crawling out of the film and going after the filmmakers which is <laughs> insane and like I understand why an audience was not prepared for that right while people were like what the hell is this yeah um but you know you had very you know you had met things that were their own meta-analysis like Buffy the Vampire Slayer huge postmodern, self-referential um piece of metafiction happening at that time mm -hmm. um I think they basically came out around the same time because I think Sarah Michelle Geller would have been in Buffy by the time she was in Scream yeah because too. she I mean she had a great 90s yeah yeah With Buffy I know what you did last summer and Scream 2 yeah all she wasn't wasn't she in all those at the same time basically she was in I feel like Buffy and the first Scream came out pretty much the same time. And then Scream I 2. Real quick. Scream 2 comes out. And I think she's been in Buffy for a bit at that point. And then right after that is um, I Know What You Did Last Summer. I think. So Buffy premieres in March of 97. Okay, so, so yeah. Scream, yeah, so about the... And, so Scream, and Scream 2 is December 97. Yeah. So. And I know what you did last summer is the summer of 97. Yeah, so 97 was a great year for Sarah <laughs> yeah. Michelle Geller. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so you've got, like, you know, this starting to bubble up that people, you know, and, you know, who, you know, again, I'm not a history person for this stuff. Is it because we were approaching the millennium and people were getting self-reflective? Was... You know, well, I mean, that's brought up in Scream. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I the the whole um like the nihilism of Gen X, where he was like, you know, it's yeah. the millennium, motives are incidental. Which, mm -hmm. like, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> like, like that's a very Gen X media thing to say. Like, kind of like something that you would pull out of like Rent, where it's like yeah. somebody just says this, and you're like, okay, explain to me what you mean by that actually besides like a sound bite but um but yeah so you have all this stuff going on um and the other big thing that starts in like 94 95 right before this film you know right before it was written and put into production is the oj simpson murder trial which mm. was kind of the big catalyst for the 24-hour news cycle yeah so you had, you know, pretty much everybody has like universal access to cable, television in their homes. News realizes it can no longer rely on like the daily sort of schedule where like every morning and like midday and night they update people on, you know, the news of the world. The latest development. Yeah. Right. So they go into the 24-hour news cycle where they're like now incentivized um, to like always have something to say, to always be like, first to have the breaking story um and that's kind of like what Gail Weathers like really just embodies throughout this entire film like she's a very like scrappy journalist so you know she's really trying to you know like she mentions trying to win a Pulitzer and 
you know, right. wanting to just really make a name for herself as a journalist. And, you know, on the one hand, she does really think she has a story worth telling in that she thinks that Cotton Weary is innocent and he's, yeah. you know, that Sydney accused the wrong man and he's going to go jail for the rest of his life for something he didn't do. And there's like something noble in that. But, you know, then it's also that she, you know, she wants to be the person to break that story. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and she's constantly up Sydney's ass. She like is the reporter who finds the back door at the sheriff's station. She plants the cameras in the kid's house when they're at yep. the party. Um, without anybody's consent. Without anybody's consent. First thing she does after all like the dust settles is starts reporting. Right. Um, like she yeah. is still, she is injured. Yeah, she's like, she's been, she's like limping onto the camera. Um, And, you know, like that was like the thing at the time was you had to be the person who had the most up-to-date news because now people were viewing news as a form of entertainment, essentially. Yeah. Which would only continue with like, I believe the Bill Clinton stuff happens after, like later in the decade. Oh, with um, Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. It might have been before. That was another yeah. thing that also played a lot. The impeachment played a lot into uh, right the, the, the news cycle. It, they were definitely close mm-hmm. in in that and making that happen. But um, I can't I can't remember which was first. This is also the time that you get what they sort of call journalism of assert of of um, assertion. Which again, mm. not a history person my understanding of this is like this goes counter to traditional journalism of verification which i think um michael hobbs from you're wrong about has and maintenance phase has he's a journalist for formerly for huffington post but he had this great thing about journalism where he's like you know if one person comes up to you and says like it's raining outside and somebody else comes up to you and says it's sunny outside your job is not to say this person says this and this person says that. Your job is to go outside. Just to go outside. Which is like journalism and verification. Now we have this thing where like people's opinions become news. Mm. And you know, what people have to say about something becomes news, which you know, you can follow that thread to where we are today with, you know, absolutely all the misinformation and you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I feel like it's kind of a fun like on the nose but in a fun way bit where like sort of the conclusion of this thesis is like you know Kenny's watching these kids on tv getting killed but like a half hour or not a half hour 30 seconds behind so he can't do anything about it like he's watching them so he can't be an active like party in the events that are happening and then he eventually ends up getting killed like basically right after that because of the delay too yeah, yeah, because the ghost face is already outside. His ghost face is already outside. Yeah, I think there's there's maybe a, an interesting reading there that Kenny loses his life because of the delay. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I don't know if that was intentional, but I think it's kind of fun to think about it that way. Absolutely, it is. Um, you know, and then again, we said like one thing that Scream really did well is, you know, like long before Ned Stark, spoilers, lost his head, um Mm. at the end of game of thrones you know like drew barrymore huge star is killed in the first 12 minutes of scream she's the one on the poster she's Drew barrymore 
you know, as most people understood it. And at one point she was the lead and, you know, she gets immediately killed. And like she, and like, I don't know how much you, and, and even myself, it's more foggy, but like at this point, she was massive. Yeah. Like she was like like the nineties, like Drew Barrymore was huge in the nineties. Right. Like now, like her, like professional career, you know, a a, a little bit wonky and stuff or whatever, but like, she was the the darling out of ET in 95. She did playboy. Mm -hmm. Like she was massive. Like you're totally right in saying that like Drew Barrymore, like was the nineties. So like it, I think it's hard for people who maybe aren't super interested in pop culture or like younger fans to really appreciate what it meant to kill her in this movie. And in such a violent, um, yeah. you know, and again, we said it was probably the goriest part of the film is that opening. And like, you know, when that happens, it really disorients the audience because now yeah. it's like, okay, nobody has plot armor. If you're going to just cut Drew Barrymore open right um, you know anyone can die and you know totally like there are great like threads and stuff on reddit that you can find of like people who saw Scream when it first came out talking about the reactions in the theaters when Drew Barrymore was killed and it's just like it's an experience that doesn't get replicated often you know like people talking about like oh my gosh like my whole theater like screamed or like you could hear people talking and or like like everyone was mumbling like what the fuck like you know like it was it was massive and you know I feel like it was a really like prescient script decision that like you know gets emulated then in the Blair Witch Project where you have sort of like reality mm. and um you know, reality and, and fiction blending into like just outright paranoia. And then you've got Sixth Sense where you've got, a, you know, the rug pulling unreliable POV character, yeah. you know, and then it goes right into like post 9-11 horror films where it's just chaotic, gruesome plots and kind of unpredictable and seemingly like meaningless deaths and like unmotivated violence. Like Interesting, yeah. It just felt very like... um predictive of of that and then yeah and then you've got game of thrones which obviously the books are coming out around the time scream comes out yeah you know like that was huge event television that people like were really you know a lot of that stuff people were really shocked about um yeah you know even with half the viewers having read the books you know like think of how many people like filmed their friends reactions to the red wedding and i was just gonna say that yeah like that that's probably really close I think to what people felt with Scream um things like the Red Wedding or things like Ned Stark's death at the end of season one um and it's it's just just, it was it was that thing where it was like this is not supposed to happen right what happens next as an interesting thing with a film like this where it's pointing at you know the legacy of films that came before it and said this is what they did you know this is what you're Mm -hmm. expecting 
you know, and at different points, they sometimes do what you're expecting because they've told you a character did this, so X is going to happen. But at other times, you know, it's just like fully like, okay, it's aware, you know, the characters are aware. So now they're going to be making opposite decisions. And Yes. You know, it's yeah. just, it, it really, you know, from my understanding, like reading people's reactions to it, it was just like a very like tense film to watch the first time they you know you watched it because you really had no idea yeah you really had no idea and and it's that thing where like scream is is a very good mystery film mm-hmm. um like there's lots of good clues there's lots of red herrings um there's there's that thing where like you kind of realize afterwards oh if you just listen to randy he gets it yeah like he figures it out um for both Billy and Stu. But it's that thing where all slashers until this point, like it was pretty obvious who the killer was. Mm-hmm. And it was really just like playing out like crazy deaths or cool deaths until you got to the end. But Scream does this really interesting thing where it proves that like you can still have cool deaths but like those cool deaths work better when you care about the characters and when mm-hmm. you still have a compelling story to tell because Scream still has like actual whodunit elements. Right, and like, that's like something they're playing up now with the fifth one. They're like, it's yes. always somebody you know. Or, you know, and they're always like, somebody you know. The killer is on this poster. Right. Yeah. And that, that, that's something that was brought back to these kinds of movies that had long been absent. Um, and it plays with it in such interesting ways because to me, and you feel free to say how you feel about this, the fact that Billy is one of the killers is not that much of a surprise to me. No, I mean, like it is in that like they present it early and then move away from it. But, you know, I never yeah. feel fully like comfortable around him after that. Exactly. But what is to me a huge surprise is that Stu is one of the killers. Right. You know, because there's this conditioning that has happened in horror and slashers and just mysteries in general. I mean, Agatha Christie or, you know, whatever, like that there's only one killer. The audience is expecting that. And I think... And there's always been two, except for Scream 3. There's always been two, except for Scream 3, which one day we'll talk <laughs> about how there were supposed to be two. Yes. Three as well. Um, but yeah, and, and just sort of, and sort of that thing that, that, that really played with that and, and really shocked you because you're like, you're sitting there and you're like, okay, Billy seems kind of obvious, but maybe it is. But then who else is it? And and you're trying to figure it out. Oh my God, it's two people. Like mm-hmm. that was a that was a game changer, like at, at the time. Um and in terms of an interesting analysis of it with with Columbine happening in such close proximity to the release of Scream, relatively speaking, it's interesting to look at the parallels between the shooters and Billy and Stu, I think, and sort of that idea of aimless nihilism. Mm -hmm. 
that um, really terrified people, I think, in the 90s to think that uh, youth were so disaffected in that way mm-hmm. that we really see come about um, on screen with Billy and Stu. And just that idea that like anybody could be a killer. Um, and I think it makes this film so interesting to look at now because with hindsight, like we see in Billy and Stu so much of like modern culture, mm-hmm. whether it's like the idea of the incel right. or all of these people that commit these mass shootings that have become so common place. Um, I don't know, I may have lost my train of thought. No, I, I think that like, that is like something interesting to think about, like, you know, <clears throat> Like just the sort of like the idea of like, you know, what we know today is like the typical, um, you know, mass terrorist in the U.S. is going to be somebody not unlike, you know, Billy and Stu. You know, you're going to be a sort of, you know, potentially younger, potentially older, but a white, straight, cisgendered man, um, you know, who may or may not have a specific grudge with somebody, but clearly is just, you know, has a like nihilistic view of the world and a lack of just like empathy for. um, And the idea of feeling slighted somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which, you know, we, not so much with Stu, but we see it with Billy, right? Like Billy feels like his life has been corrupted Mm-hmm. And he's been denied something because of other people. Right. And they make that very quick line in the beginning that he used to go out with Casey Becker and she dumped him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Stu. Stu used Stu, to go out. Stu. Yeah. 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 And then there's, the, and you, you wonder, is there almost like a strangers on a train element to it? Like, is that how Billy pulled in Stu? Like, a, oh, you're, you know, you're pissed because Casey dumped you for Steve. So, like, let's get revenge on her. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we'll get, like, I'll, I'll, like, almost like I'll kill Casey for you if you kill Sydney for me. Right. You know, like, these two young men who feel slighted somehow, and maybe that's where all of this came from right like Mm -hmm. which is the basis of incel culture yeah you know you feel you are entitled to something that you were denied you're entitled yeah and so it's totally justifiable you know for you to take revenge in this really violent manner yeah you know like something something was hit on with scream that still resonates today i guess is the larger point right like maybe that's why this movie still feel so relevant is because like we've seen so many billies and stews Mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem like they're gonna stop which is really scary yeah for sure um i also think it's important to say that what's so interesting about scream all of them really um 
is that even though they are whodunits, it does not actually hinge on the killer reveal. Right. Because there's so many great moments in this movie without finding out that it's Billy or finding out that it's Stu or finding out that it's both of them together. Right. And that's a really good, that's really good writing. Well, and it's testament to like, you know, everyone dons the ghost face persona, right? Like, you know, they take, you know, they put the mask on and, you know, they do what they're going to do. You know, but it's like, it's interesting that they continue to, you know, like if you think about like, you know, there's not really anything comparable, but if you think about like in Saw when Jigsaw started getting like little friends and helpers, like, oh yeah, you know, like it's not quite, you know, like, you know, Ghostface exists and then there are the killers. Like, I feel like, you know, like yeah. it's just this, this entity that exists. And that's why we never really, like, we care who the killer is because it's like, I want to know. Right. But it, the story and the emotional heft of things usually don't hinge on it. Yes. Yes. And that's the thing. When you think of the other major franchises, the big three, maybe, mm-hmm. like, Halloween, Friday the 13th, and Nightmare. What those became, eventually, all of them, was the audience rooting for the killer and the kills. Mm -hmm. And not really, like, the characters becoming incidental, the teenagers, they were disposable, whatever. We were just in it for the cool kills. But what sets Scream apart is that we have a character-driven anchor and like we're there for Sydney, Gale, and Dewey. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a there's a vested interest in Ghostface and who is behind the mask this time and, and what is their motive. But I think Scream is the one horror franchise that remains character hero focused and driven as opposed to slasher focused. Right. And I'm thinking about those two, you bring them up, like they constantly have to invent reasons and ways for, you know, their villains to return. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Scream, like it's never the same person because they all get killed. They just pass the mask around. They put, you know, the persona is what lives on. And like, that's kind of what, um, you know, Sydney continues to have to deal with is it's never one person. Like it's like the, you know, accumulation of, you know, again, going back to, you know, entitlement, resentment, you know, all these things. Yeah. And they just, in this instance, happen to be coming down on this one person. Right. And isn't that kind of, at the end of the day, like, the most terrifying idea? Like, not that necessary, not that one person, like a Michael Myers or a Freddie keeps coming and coming and coming, but that an idea keeps getting adopted. A persona keeps getting taken up. Like someone keeps warping it. This keeps happening to them. Like thinking of the trailer for the latest movie, Sydney, you know, talking to, um, I can't remember the new character's name, but you know, she says, I know who you are. And Sydney's like, I've been through this a lot. Yeah. Like, this keeps happening for different reasons like that's a really scary idea yeah yeah so fun stuff yeah good 
good analysis um, overall. Mm -hmm. um, let's now talk about um, real quick, uh, one good scare. What is the most frightening moment of screen for you? <clears throat> I mean, I it's cliche, but like, I feel like the opening, just like the drama of it is just so like, every time I just always feel so bad for her and her parents, like and her mom holding the phone and she's listening to her, like, you know, breathing. Oh, Casey? Um, yeah, like, I think that's like a real, that's that's my one good scare. No, I'm totally with you. I think the moment when you know Mrs. Becker goes outside and sees Casey, mm -hmm. and you know the reality. Uh, she has to confront that reality, and the scream mm -hmm. that she lets out is is hard. It's, yeah, it's scary. Um, ah, we'll, t we'll go now into a very interesting segment that we call the view from the closet, which is where we take a moment and we consider how we can view this film from an LGBTQ plus lens. Uh, something we'd like to do since we are both part of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, <laughs> you you want to just go right, you want to just go right into it or you want me to start yeah go for it okay so uh I think there are four big points for mm -hmm. the closet here um number one is Billy and Stu yeah <laughs> um to the point where it's kind of almost become a joke in the horror community, at least at this point, maybe not for casual viewers. Um, I was listening to a podcast where someone brought it up, actually. They were like, do you think Billy and Stu were in a romantic relationship? And the host of the podcast said no. And I was, like, was like, oh, <laughs> you're either unconsciously homophobic or you actually haven't seen this movie. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, Billy and Stu clearly are not just friends. Mm -hmm. And there's a reading that we can do with them that is very Leopold and Loeb. Mm -hmm. um, which for those listening, won't go into the whole thing, but uh, Leopold and Loeb, in the early 19th century committed a murder just for the sake of seeing if they could get away with it. Mm -hmm. um, and it has been long, long speculated. I'm not sure if there's proof or not that they were in a sexual relationship with each other. One was a dominant manipulative partner. The other was more submissive going along with it just because kind of thing, very analogous to billions do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I think there's a lot of evidence within the film that supports this idea. Kevin Williamson is openly gay. Mm -hmm. And so um, the way Billy and Stu are written, I think is important to consider. We get a lot of interesting things within the film, I think that lead to a queer reading. Um, Sydney calls Billy a pansy ass mama's boy. Mm -hmm. 
um, which is echoed in Scream 2 when Randy says that Billy, Billy, <laughs> he was a homo-repressed mama's boy. Yeah. And kind of makes it a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there's there's definitely a reading there that uh, Billy is struggling with the homosexual repression. Other people have said that um, it's not Billy, but that Stu is the one struggling with it, that he's in love with Billy. Um, There's a lot here. Of course, when Billy reveals himself to be one of the killers, he quotes um, Mm -hmm. Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates in Psycho and and references the quote, Anthony Perkins was famously um, closeted. Um, Anthony Perkins was gay. Um, so there's a lot of reading, you know, that Billy's referencing him. Does that mean something? Um, during the finale, Billy is dressed as James Dean is dressed in Rebel Without a Cause. Mm -hmm. Um, it has been long speculated that James Dean was gay. Um, when Billy and Stu are stabbing each other, there have been some readings that their reactions, that they're going too deep or that it hurts mm-hmm. is meant to be um, a reference to anal sex between men, um, which can be painful mm-hmm. and should be taken slowly. Um, There's a whole uh, sequence on that in uh, sex education, if you need a people I am. I have it queued up because <laughs> you've been talking about it and I've, a, been like, yeah. I, I've, I've just been seeing so much stuff and I was like, I'm behind on this and I shouldn't be behind it's on this. It's really good it, and you're going to love it. Um, I'm there, really excited. There's like a whole episode where um, like they About ask, anal sex? Well, about like anal douching and like preparing uh, and stuff. And he's like, obviously he's like, I don't know about this because I'm a straight boy who's never had sex because I haven't had so, yeah so he has to like enlist some help yeah 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 so I th- like I guess all of this to say is that there's so much into this first reading of Billy and Stu and I'll, and I'll take a moment to shut up now and um what do, what's your thoughts on that particular reading of the film no, I mean, I, I agree. And I think it even comes through in their performances and things they choose to do. And especially with yeah. Matthew Lillard, I think Matthew Lillard is very touchy with Billy in a way he's not with other characters, um, which is interesting. Like, I don't know if it's purposeful, but it definitely like, I think that's one thing that really lends itself is to the way he's very, you know, you know, whether it's because like, you know, he wants to convey that these guys are in cahoots or what, but like, you know, he's very tactile with Billy in a way that he's not, even with especially Tatum, like, you know, I think the most we get with him and Tatum is when he like lifts her up on his shoulder when they're leaving school the one day for, um, you know, like when he's like, we have a curfew, I'm gonna throw a party. Um, So I think that's definitely part of it too. Um, Yeah. Look, and and to your point, um, I I did, I I have noticed in recent viewings um, in the video store, Mm -hmm. um, there's that when Billy kind of reveals himself that he's there and he's heard Randy talking shit and then Stu is on the other side of him 
Mm-hmm. And it's like Randy is sandwiched between this two. And Stu plays with it's Randy's here. earlobe. Yeah. yeah. In a way that like I'm I was like, yeah, straight men don't <laughs> do that to each don't, other. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, no, I mean, I agree with all those readings and there's definitely like people have written long pieces about it because, you know, they understand sort of um, the context of like specifically like male homoerotic subtext better than I will um, and better than I know how to look for it. But I think like we all kind of universally agree <laughs> that they're just in a relationship or at least like yeah. don't realize they're in a relationship. Um, yeah. Like that just seems to be the kind of like default reading from my experiences with people. I think so. Um, I think we're definitely in agreement on that. Yeah. I think a lot of people, um, or at least people who are tuned into this idea. Well, and I think so much horror has a lot of um, homoerotic subtext because so many actors um you know like the when I went to go see um Friday the 13th part two with um the actress who visited uh, whose name I I forget right now but she was saying that like she was trying to hit on like so many guys on set and they were like all just fucking each other they were messing around with each other yeah like I feel like there's a lot of queer actors in horror yeah either because at the time it's the only work they could get or it's because they're really drawn to it and then you have like a lot of queer creators in horror who like feel very pulled to to that method of storytelling well and I and honestly just sort of the idea almost kind of like the stereotype that like acting or the arts or theater is like a gay profession Mm -hmm. there is something to that yeah you know it does draw a lot of um people from the lgbtq community um yeah yeah and and also i think with this film just sort of like the idea of um you know, Sydney's kind of on this like journey in the film um, internally where she has to like come to terms with the idea that something she thought was true is not mm-hmm. like concerning her mother yeah, um, and who she was. And I think there's a reading in that of, um, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of queer people like coming to terms with and accepting mm-hmm. the idea of um, who they really are. I think that's in you know a reading you can make. There's a lot of like um, witty cattiness with Gail and Tatum as characters that mm-hmm. is like really common and sort of like exemplified and lauded in the gay community, mm-hmm. um, the idea of snappy comebacks. Um, when Sydney I think it's a potential... Gail in the face is a fun one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not to equate like aggression with like female queerness or whatever, but- um... No, no, but, <laughs> but yeah, there's something there. Yeah. yeah. There's um, a tension there that- 
there's a tension there a hundred percent that like you know yeah is, is is something to be potentially read into um there's also some like interesting choices of dialogue and like almost like throw off lines that I find interesting um like the just the idea of describing Billy as a bubble butt boyfriend mm-hmm. um is odd to me and speaks of gayness and, mm-hmm. and, and queerness almost like I don't know a, a bubble butt is something that's very particular in the gay community mm-hmm. um and um there's a there's a there's a line you know when when Sydney gets the call at the Riley's like looks like you fingered the wrong guy I hate <laughs> Every time that comes up, I hate. I'm like, uh-huh. I know that's a term that people use, like for right, and like, like people be like, oh, it's supposed to be like, it's like, you know, like gumshoe noir, like you fingered him, and I'm like, yeah, it's but it's the nineties, but it happened in the nineties, <laughs> and so the idea of fingering a guy was something different. Yeah, and um, I mean, it's it's also sort of like a fun. I don't know, writing thing or whatever, because obviously in the finale, Sydney does put her finger in Billy's open wound. Heart cavity wound. Um, but it, yeah, but it's but I think there's also still a gay reading there. Oh yeah, no, 100%. I mean, I feel like you're always going to have that, you know, and maybe it's Freudian, but always when there's some sort of penetration happening and it's not even yeah. necessarily a gay reading, sometimes it's so much, it's like a sexual reading depending on yeah. you know what's happening um totally yeah the whole thing right which we mentioned about like when billy and sue start stabbing each other yeah and the idea of being penetrated right. by another man and what have you yeah yeah and so i feel like you know i'm sure they're out there i don't know i'm not going to speak for everybody but i have yet to find a queer person who doesn't love scream i haven't either yeah I have, in fact, I think Scream is particularly beloved by the LGBTQ plus community. Um, that's what, that's my experience. Yeah. Based off of like my personal life, plus like what I see on horror Twitter mm-hmm. and gay Twitter, um, this movie has a, tends to have a special place in the hearts of a lot of queer people. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if that's because of the readings we've mentioned. I don't know if it's because Kevin Williamson is openly gay and um, the way he wrote the movie. Um, I think it is interesting to engage with the idea that if Billy and Stu were romantically or sexually involved in a Leopold and Loeb type situation, that they are the villains. I think that's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Um, not for right now, but it's like, hmm, that's curious, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, th- this is a this is a movie where there's lots there versus other films where we've covered with this question and we kind of stretch ourselves <laughs> to come up with a view for the closet. <laughs> so it's it's nice to have so much to talk about for this particular question yeah 
so, so right now we'll move into legacy, legacy. What is a legacy? Um, and this is where we look at the impact of the film in question and how it's regarded now, how it's been preserved in pop culture and merchandise, how um, it's been homaged in other mediums, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, um, I feel like we really covered a lot of this throughout, but- We have. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, basically very few horror films that exist today would have been possible without what Scream did in the 90s. Obviously, Scary Movie and a lot of those other, you know, like parody films that happened afterwards were, you know, parodying Scream, which were, which itself was parodying horror movies, which yes. is a weird concept. Um, you know, it got, you know, Scream got, I don't even know what you want to call it, like the TV show, because it was, they were just kind of using the name Scream. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the, but, in the third season, when they depart from what they did in the first two seasons, the killer actually wears the ghost face mask, but it has no connection to yeah. so the, the main you know, Using the clout there, obviously it's almost 30 years old and it's still getting narratively consistent sequels. Um, you know, and even books and other media, like, you know, um, My Best Friend's Exorcism uh, and Final Girls Support Group by Grady Hendrix, um, Final Girls by Riley Sager, Chasing the Boogeyman by Richard Chismar, My Heart is yeah. a Chainsaw and its upcoming sequel, Don't Fear the Reaper by Stephen Graham Jones, all mm -hmm. either directly reference Scream or like clearly um, were inspired by it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something else just kind of just to note here and there uh, Dimension ended up getting sued by Sony because they had released a film called Screamers in 95 and so they were like well the title was way too similar um, that suit was settled out of court and the settlement are still sealed it's unclear what happened there, but it is just interesting to think like, really, that's yeah. what you, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, and so um, before we move into our closing question, I did just want to go through a list of the references to other horror films that I caught in Scream. Okay. And I wanna see if you caught them too and or if you have any that I missed. Okay. Okay, so. Um, Casey mentions that the Elm Street movies after the very first ones sucked. Mm -hmm. And Wes Craven obviously directed the original and none of, and, didn't again until New Nightmare. Right. So I counted that. Um, the idea of phone calls is a reference to Black Christmas, When a Stranger Calls, and Halloween. Mm -hmm. um, when Ghostface asks Casey the question about who the killer in Halloween was, you can hear the theme song playing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the questions themselves are references to other horror movies. Um, Neil tells Sydney 
um, when, when he's about to leave, if she needs anything to drive down to the Mackenzie's, which is a reference to Halloween. Mm -hmm. uh, Lori tells Tommy and Lindsay, I want you to go down the street to the Mackenzie's. Yeah. <laughs> um Tatum says before she's killed is this I spit on your garage which is a reference to I spit on your grave uh Billy Billy Loomis is a reference to Dr. Loomis from mm -hmm. Halloween which is in itself a reference to Sam Loomis from Psycho <laughs> uh and of course killing off Drew Barrymore in the opening is a nod to Psycho killing off Marion Lee mm -hmm in the first whatever minutes of the movie. Um, Billy talks about watching The Exorcist on TV, um, you know, when he's in Sydney's bedroom. And of course, Linda Blair shows up a couple mm -hmm. minutes later. Sydney talks about Woodsboro feeling like the town that dreaded sundown. Mm -hmm. uh, Billy goes into, Sydney's bedroom through the window, just like um, Johnny Depp in Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm -hmm. um, the actress that plays Mrs. Riley is the mom from Gremlins. Uh, Tatum wears the same sports jersey that Johnny Depp has in Nightmare on Elm Street when he's killed. Uh, Wes Craven plays Fred the janitor, mm -hmm. which is a nod to Freddy Krueger. He's wearing the the same shirt and the hat. Uh, Stu says that Sydney has branded Billy as Candyman. Oh yeah. Uh, Billy quotes Psycho when he reveals himself to be one of the killers and shoots Randy. Carrie, Prom Night, The Howling, Sounds of the Lambs all get mentioned. Randy asks Stu, what's Leatherface doing here when he mm -hmm. sees Billy at the house? Tatum says it's like a Wes Carpenter flick. Yeah. Combining two of the most legendary horror directors. Uh, Randy pulls the group at the house if they want to watch Halloween or Evil Dead. And Sydney says that she's afraid she's going to be a bad seed. Yeah. I think I got them all. Did I miss anything to your knowledge? Mm, no. I didn't even catch the I spit on your garage. Uh yeah yeah right pretty good witty yeah <laughs> witty what a witty movie yeah all right we are about to wrap up our discussion before we do so we're going to go into our closing question which is my question this time mm -hmm. and in the spirit of Ghostface, we're going to play a game uh oh and that game is mary fuck kill <laughs> I love Mary Fuck Kill. And your three are, mm -hmm. are you ready? Mm -hmm. Okay. Billy, mm -hmm. Dewey, mm -hmm. Randy. See, this is tough. <laughs> <laughs> because, okay, okay. So I think, Assuming he was consenting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Billy. Okay, okay. I feel like it would be weird, but fun. That's a really good assessment. And then, you know, be done with it. Right. Um, I think, honestly, 
the thing is, is I could see myself killing or marrying either of them, <laughs> uh, of Dewey or Randy for different reasons, because Randy would be like, oh, great, like you can watch horror movies for the rest of your life, but also he gets so fucking annoying. Right. Um, and then Dewey, you know, he's the nice stable boy. Yeah. You know, he's a stable boy um, and stuff, but I don't know if I want to marry a cop, you know? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I mean, I guess he stops being a cop after the first movie, but when um, also he's ridiculous and a doofus. Um, I guess I just I'd have to kill Randy because he just gets so annoying. And okay, and then you'll marry Dewey. Dewey. Yeah. All right. All right. Solid. Solid. Yeah. Honestly, I think I would end up doing the same. Yeah. <laughs> because because I was like, all right. You're going to have a weird, but probably pretty good night with Billy. Yeah. It's going to be and memorable. It's definitely going to be memorable. Um, I thought about marrying Randy. And then I was like, I don't know. He's a film bro. And so am I. And that's probably going to be too much. You'd get in a fight over. Exactly. Something. Exactly. He is going to be like, you know, insisting on something that i'm just gonna be like no 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 yeah. so it's it is probably gonna have to be kill randy and mary dewey because he, he is he's stable he's consistent you can rely on him mm-hmm. it's it's gonna be all right with dewey yeah <laughs> that was good that was a good one and screen yeah, is the film to do mary fuck kill <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think that's going to wrap up our discussion on 1996's Scream. Woo! Yeah, we finally did it. Yeah. Um, as we close out this episode, um, please feel free to share with us any and all thoughts you have about Scream, whether it be uh, the original film or um, thoughts on the new film, because we're ready you know mm-hmm. we're ready to hear it um we're excited there's lots of ways you can get in touch with us miss mel's gonna tell you about that all right we have got twitter it's the best place to get in touch with us i think you can send us a tweet dm splatter chatter 666 minus all the vowels in the word splatter chatter searches will pop right up um you can find us on tumblr splatter chatter.tumblr.com you can email us at splatter chatter 666 no that's a lie don't listen to that it's splatter chatter 669 at gmail.com someone has the other one yeah um you can check out the blog leave comments all that good stuff at splatter chatter.com and instagram at splatter chatter 666 yeah um plus our patreon patreon.com slash slash chatter 66 yeah um yeah look for us again in february um Mm -hmm. we haven't nailed on the topic just yet so we will forgo promoting it because we can't and for right now um stay safe out there yeah it's getting a little wonky. You know what's so funny, just to tack this on to the end, is when no, yeah. um, 
COVID first like really started happening like between March and June, I would say, I really thought about Scream and like how the lockdown felt like, like the response in Scream, like the implementation of the curfew, the, the closing curfew. of the schools, the sort of like amorphous killer that you couldn't really identify and all that. Like I was really, and you know, like the idea of like, just, you know, the virus as like a, you know, something you have to fight off, kind of like you would fight mm. off like an attacker. And that's, you know, so it's just something I was thinking about, but definitely stay safe out there. <laughs> There's something there. There's something yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Please stay safe. Don't let Ghostface or COVID get you if you can. Um, and whilst you're doing that, definitely keep up the creep. Uh, and for now, we will say au revoir, adios, and dust.